It's 8.30, Mountain Time, 10.30 Eastern. On this beautiful Thursday morning, Ryan Jesperson here with you, Samuel G. Brooks, my co-pilot on this morning. Good morning, Real Talkers. And that's not not an immediate out-of-the-gate swipe at Texas Senator Ted Cruz that you're my co-pilot today. That's just a a bit of a tease. Uh, We are going to get to the news today uh, around 9 o'clock. We're still working on the branding for our newscasts. And and as you know, we have a job posting up right now at ryanjesperson.com, ryanjesperson.com slash team for a chase producer and one of the duties of this chase producer when they're when they're brought on board as our newest team member here at real talk will be to deliver the nine o'clock news and we're going to have to we're going to have to sort of reconcile one of the things that we've been excited about sam uh, the difference between this show one of the differences between this show and what you'll get on so-called terrestrial radio is that our interviews can go a little bit longer uh, you know, we don't have to worry about things like hitting commercial breaks right on time or getting to the news right on time. The things that these terrestrial broadcasters obsess over, because we know that you're here along for the ride. A lot of you aren't listening to this live. As a matter of fact, the great majority of you listen to this as a recorded show via podcast. And we thank you for making us Canada's number one most listened to daily news podcast. But for those of you that are live, we know that, you know, if you get your news at at, at 8.59, unlikely, uh, nine o'clock on the nose, Every once in a while and, and, and nine, nine o'clock ish, nine oh three, nine oh four, nine oh five or in a day like yesterday ish time around here. Well, yesterday, Irshad Manji. So so, you know, Oprah Winfrey has has bestowed upon uh, our friend Irshad, uh, you know, an Oprah Winfrey Leadership Award. Do you think we're going to leave her sitting in the bullpen for six minutes while I go on about news headlines? Probably not. It would be a bad editorial decision is what it would be. So as we prepare to welcome this chase producer, we don't know who they are yet, uh, but as we prepare to welcome them to the team, we'll have to come up. We're, lo- we're looking for a sponsor. Might as well throw that out to the real talkers. We're looking for a sponsor for our news, for our nine o'clock news. And we'll probably want to refer to it as the nine ish o'clock news. I-, I think we're looking for a sponsor that is uh, th- that that aligns with the idea that the news will happen. It just won't always happen at the same time. I wonder if it might be someone like um uh, somebody in the you know the, the the mattress business, the duvet business, the oh, the, the, I like that. the fluffy slipper business, the 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 you know the the puffy coat business. People that are like, hey, are you? We get to sample all these products first, right? Well, well obviously, yeah. I mean, okay, that's we, that's my only stipulation. We can't be talking about things we haven't sampled. You know, uh, coming up in just a moment, I'm very excited uh, to talk to Dr. Juniper Simonis. This was uh, a suggestion that was put on our radar yesterday. Yesterday was. Uh, uh, remarkable show for a number of reasons we were experiencing technical difficulties uh sam was keeping his chin up and fighting the good fight sam i felt like i was watching rocky yesterday out of the corner of my eye like you know rocky's just getting his ass handed to him but you know he's going to emerge you know rocky's not going to go down and stay down there's not a chance. I, I appreciate the analogy because it sure. Well, uh, maybe it maybe it did feel like Rocky in the middle of the fight over on this side of the room. Like you were was, there was, bloodied and battered. There was uh, there there was a lot of internal panic yesterday. But no, but you didn't show out some network issues. I would like to, on your behalf, retract the use of the word panic because there was no panic evident. I okay. thought it was it was great, but there were some things outside of our control that were interfering with the show from a technical standpoint. I want to say a couple of things. Uh, number one, we have left our nine o'clock block open today because I'm going to get to these i have a stack of emails just from yesterday 
unbelievable. Real talkers on mass. It was amazing to hear from you as you were sorting out your thoughts on some of the things that I was clearly sorting out my thoughts on yesterday. I went on a bit of a rant, uh, an impromptu one at that. Uh, something I feel strongly about and something that I know many of you feel strongly about as well. So we had kind of the technical difficulties, but then we also had in my mind back to back to back conversations that were absolutely amazing. Number one, whistleblower protection. The role that whistleblowing plays in in the uh, what do we want to call it? The accountability process. And then we transitioned from that into moral courage in messy times. And what an amazing stretch exercise that was. I mean, it jumped out at me. <clears throat> it's going to stay in my mind. What uh, Ms. Manji had to say to us where she said, uh, moral courage is not speaking truth to power. That's the easy part. Moral courage is speaking truth to the power of your own ego. Just like what a profound statement. When she said that, I just went like, whoa. You know, I thought. Were, were you like like me and probably a whole bunch of the real talkers that like immediately after that interview, you registered for her talk tonight? Mm. It's free. Yeah, it's put on. It's part of the Edmonton Public Library speaker series. It's sponsored, co-sponsored by the Shift Lab. And um, oh, my gosh, who's the third sponsor? They're not going to appreciate that. But it's the Edmonton Public Library, the, the Shift Lab and somebody else. My apologies. Anyway, you can check it out at EPL.ca slash speakers dash series. Earshot Magic tonight. I think it's seven o'clock mountain, nine o'clock Eastern. Is that right? That is correct. And it's a free virtual event. Moral courage in messy times. Encourage you to sign. Like, why wouldn't you encourage you to sign up for that? We got a note from Katie Cook Chivers down in Calgary that said I became an instant fan and signed up right away for that. So and then and then we have Blake Desjardins on from, uh, you know, uh, I mean, basically, well, Blake, you know, is is, uh, you know, a, a holds a, a national position with the Métis uh, General Counsel. And, and obviously yesterday, I think the, the reason why I'm hesitant in introducing him with this professional designation is because that really had nothing to do with his perspective yesterday. He was honoring his cousin, Pierre. He was he was talking about the memory of his cousin, Pierre, who the family lost uh, to the street, so to speak. But he talked about Pierre's wonderful um, character qualities and what an amazing person he was growing up, what an amazing cousin he was, the the the, the outdoorsman that he was, uh, how he would relate I mean, what a powerful story, how he would relate. And and just on a side note, just to toss it in, the interview was was interrupted. We got booted off YouTube yesterday. Of course we did. Somebody wrote into the show oh, and said course. something. There, there's something like the the Mercury. What is it? Not the. Oh, not, oh yeah. Uh, what, one not of our, Equinox, but it's uh, like the Mercury. Um, uh, Mercury grade. Mer Mercury's in retrograde. Mercury. Mercury's. Someone wrote in simply to say, fellas, hang tight. Mercury's in retrograde for like four more days or that something was, like this. Uh, that was that was courtesy of our friend Lauren that we've Lauren. Named. Yes. OK, perfect. So so this. So Blake Desjardins, his interview gets interrupted like mid interview. So if you want, if you missed him and what he was talking about, you're, you're not going to actually catch a big chunk of it on our YouTube. It's the first time it's happened to us in. 56 shows I think we've done um, But if you listen to our podcast if you download Our podcast you'll hear Blake's full interview and he talks about, I wanted to mention that to you real talkers He talks about his cousin Pierre and the stories Were amazing And as we looked at what happened over the Weekend here in Edmonton uh, And contrasted with what we Saw in Calgary Alberta police officers Kind of chumming about with these anti-maskers Demonstrating at a mall while in Edmonton, in, in minus 30, you know, horrific, uh, frigid windchill conditions, Edmonton police officers are booting houseless individuals from from a, a warm transit 
station into the cold and people were outraged myself included and blake was here to tell his story well you as a listening audience as a viewing audience absolutely erupted yesterday and it's healthy and it's good and it's positive and uh so we're gonna leave we've left a half hour open on the show today uh unless something crazy happens that we need to jump to i don't see that happening because i can't imagine something being a bigger priority then picking your brains and getting into what you had to say about this. So that's coming up in just about 20 minutes. We've got a remarkable story to hear before then. Uh, This was another message. As I'm going off yesterday, as I'm working my way through my thoughts, a viewer writes in on the live chat and says, Ryan, not to make your head explode even more, but have you heard about the story in Portland with the police guarding the dumpsters at the Fred Meyer? And, I saw it in the I saw it live, but I was like, I, I, I'm not, it wasn't the right time to, to look it up. I was kind of channeling my energy. I read it after and we said, we've got to talk to somebody in Portland. And so our lead off guest today is is probably in my mind that the citizen journalist that was that was most inserted into this story. So Dr. Juniper Simonis will be joining us in just a moment. Wanted to remind you that each and every morning we're proud to 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 proclaim from the rooftops that when we are trying to understand crypto and Bitcoin, we go to the team at Bitcoin Well. And we're very excited to have them on board as our presenting sponsor here on Real Talk. 2021's been a huge year for Bitcoin. But if you're among the majority of people like the people that chimed in with our real talk question of the week last week. And we were talking about crypto and Bitcoin and and a a lot of you were saying, I just have a very, very basic understanding of this. If that's you and you want to learn more, you can find the team at Bitcoin. Well, just check out the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. So this is what we'll call listener generated comments. Uh, li- this is this is a listener influenced editorial right here. And we appreciate those of you that let us know who you'd like to see on the show. Uh, that includes Dr. Juniper L. Simonis, uh, a Ph.D. in ecology and evolutionary biology from Cornell University, the owner and lead scientist of Dapper Stats, founder of the Chemical Weapons Research Consortium. And by the way, a four-time world champion skater with the Women's Flat Track Derby Association. But it was Juniper's uh, citizen journalism that caught our attention, as mentioned, flagged by one of you real talkers yesterday. And as we took a look at their Twitter profile, at their photos, at their videos, we said, we need to talk. Uh, Dr. Simonis, welcome to Real Talk, and thanks for making time for us today. I think we might be on mute. We'll get uh, you off mute. Or are we good? No, we have audio. This is not on mute. Okay. Want to try again, Juniper? Time. We'll see if we can. Can you try again? They're working on it on their end. Okay. You know what? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll just. Yeah. We'll just Why don't you? Yeah, okay. Just... So here's the deal. So we will uh, troubleshoot it. Hey, don't worry. Every once in a while, like 12 minutes into a show and stuff like this happens and you go, is this going to be like yesterday? And we go, "Uh, uh-uh. and it doesn't matter because if it is, we got you real talkers. And as mentioned, a fistful of emails. So so why don't I get into one of these? All right. So so I was a little uh, I was passionate yesterday and it prompted Joan to send me an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And she says, Ryan, uh, today she wrote me this yesterday after the show. She says it was something I've never experienced before. As the episode played out, I could feel my ire being elevated from the talk about the the Center for Free Expression, Ryerson University, the whistleblower conversation, to hearing from author Irshad Manji, 
uh, to hearing from Blake Desjardins, that young man talking about the death of his family member, Pierre, his cousin on the streets of Edmonton, to your rant, Ryan. I was feeling more and more anger and frustration. Jones says, I actually cried during your rant. I've never shed tears watching YouTube. Thank you for that. She says, like you, Ryan, I grew up privileged, white class or white middle class family. I rebelled. So my, my maybe my early adult life wasn't quite like that. I lived hand to mouth for a short time while I was pregnant. I lived paycheck to paycheck for many years. And, and after my first divorce, says Joan, yeah, my first one, I married an indigenous man. She says, wow, did that ever open up my eyes? She says, I'm in no way comparing the few incidents of racism that he and I endured to the atrocities that others have had to live with. But just those those few experiences that I'll remember forever made me so angry, says Joan. And by the way, real talkers, there's going to be some spicy language in the emails today. Um, I'm going to read them all in their entirety because, number one, we can. And number two, I want to do your emotion, your passion and, and your your correspondence justice. So I'm going to read what you write. All right. So Jones says, you know, these few times these experiences of of racism made me so angry. I wanted to ask, who the fuck do you think you are thinking you're better than anybody else? Jones says, you know, even once he had tacked up on the wall in front of his desk in his office. Be your best. You know, he used to say, if you're you're a ditch digger, dig the best ditch you can dig. And Jones says, and that's not intended to be derogatory to those that are digging dishes. The message is it doesn't matter what you do. Do your best. Thinking that you are somehow better than anybody else demonstrates the exact opposite. She says it made me sad to think that yesterday's show was was interrupted so often that you had to ultimately shut it down early. But we were all feeling your frustration and we're with you, says Joan from Pinocchio. What an incredible email to receive. She goes on and says, by the way, I have an Uncle Larry, too. <laughs> from Joan from Pinoca. I called up my Uncle Larry yesterday on the show. Yeah, I heard from a few family members. They got to get a little chuckle out of that. Is, is the good doctor ready to go? Okay, let's get to them. Dr. Uh, Juniper Simonis, we've got your audio now. So let me officially welcome you to Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Sorry about the, the hiccup there. It's early in the morning and i am not a morning person and i had the wrong microphone clicked on let's 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 clarify that you're coming to us from uh unless it's a suburb you're coming to us from portland oregon correct so you are in the pacific time zone which means you have woken yourself up uh, like bright and early to make this appearance which we very much appreciate there's some background here that i think is relevant when we get to the why you were where you were outside fred meyer and why you were doing what you were doing and and there's a tie-in here to the murder of george floyd isn't there yeah um so my interest in documenting the police both portland police and federal police, as well as, you know, the jurisdictions in the middle, like the county and the state, um, has really come as a result of my interest in understanding the ecological impacts, the environmental impacts of chemical weapons that are being used by law enforcement uh, on uh, protesters who are standing up for racial justice and uh, black lives and indigenous lives. And in Portland, that really kicked off in this round of protests from the beginning, where uh, local Portland police officers were using excessive amounts of tear gas and other chemical weapons. And that's continued, um, you know, to varying degrees of intensity since uh, 
last May, at the end of last May. Um, and that's really why I've been documenting police is to try and figure out what chemicals they're using and what situations they're using them in and the impact that that, that has on the environment. And so when I found out that um, there were police officers who were going to the situation at Fred Meyer to guard private property um, and were basically escalating the situation in a way that they often do um, with this group of mutual aid workers, et cetera, um, I was concerned very legitimately at the risk of chemical weaponry or further escalation at the hands of the police. And I wanted to be there to document what they were bringing to a daytime event like this. Okay, you know, so we're much easier to see that kind of stuff during the day than it is at night. Sometimes. Yeah, no kidding. And and we're grateful that you've provided us with a ton of your you know your footage and your images, and we'll use those as you tell us what's going on here. Correct me at any point if I'm misrepresenting the story as it's been reported uh, or confirmed. Fred Meyer uh, sounds like lost some power to freezers and to refrigeration units, and so on mass these dumpsters were being filled with as I've read. Uh, hundreds of we'll say pounds it's an American story not kilos hundreds of pounds of of fresh meat ribs turkey shrimp rings cheese fresh produce bread uh, sounds like about a dozen people uh, saw that there was fresh and perfectly good food being thrown into a dumpster and, and started to take the food to ostensibly feed their families or or pass it along to people that could use it people that might not normally have things like healthy but expensive proteins um, Fred Meyer or someone calls the police the police respond start guarding the dumpster Fred Meyer issues a statement that says we were afraid the meat was going to go bad and we don't want anyone to get sick so that's why we called the cops have i summed up the story generally speaking for the most part yeah i think that's a, a pretty good overview and it was uh fred meyer management that did call the police um and they called the police on three people documenting nine employees guarding food so that nobody could come and see what was in there so at the point that they called the police, there were three times as many employees as, you know, I wouldn't even call them protesters. I would really call them documenters, right? The crowd, whatever you want to think about it, um, was considerably small, did not even approach like the dumpsters. They gave a lot of latitude, you know, spatially to the, uh, to the employees and the employees came up and confronted sort of closed that space and confronted the documenters who were trying to show that, you know, despite there being pounds or kilos or whatever, you just like massive amounts of food in these two dumpsters. Um, and they didn't want that information to get out to people. And then it kind of just snowballed from there. What were you, um, as we take a look at some of your images, what would you characterize to be, I mean, when you take a look at this story, uh, what do you characterize to be the most egregious element of it? Is it people were being denied access to food? Is it in your mind a, a, a misuse or misallocation or an overuse of, of police power, of a show of force? Um, is it obviously the, the trend of food waste um, that I think is most notably on display in North America? What really grinds your gears the most here? 
Yeah. I mean, at some level, it's hard to pick one thing out. Um, it is, you know, kind of across the board bad. Um, right. Uh, just the, the amount of food waste that's in general in the U S or North America is atrocious, let alone in these kinds of conditions where you have a situation where two people or two groups of people are getting the raw end of the stick. You have the people who are at home or out on the street or wherever that um, don't, you know, have lost refrigeration or don't have access to food because of the conditions. And then you have the stores who can't le like legally or, you know, within their own ways of thinking about it or whatever, sell that food anymore and need to get rid of it because they don't have refrigeration either. And yet capitalism and the ingrained security state and policing that prioritizes property over human life and dignity is on full display here. Um, Doctor, did you hear, like, are there, are there like, uh, are there nonprofits in Portland that have been speaking of, speaking out against this? I mean, whether it's sort of inner city agencies or anti-poverty networks, have, have people been going on the record? I mean, is this a pretty big story in your neck of the woods? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's definitely picked up steam, uh, at, at, you know, internationally, thank you, um, as well as nationally and locally. Um, and, you know, I personally have been, uh, I don't know, my heart flutters at the degree to which the vitriolic comment sections of Facebook and Twitter and, and such that normally would lambast anything that's even like remotely, you know, mutual aid, Antifa, whatever, all of a sudden flipping and just being radicalized by police who um, can't see past the immediate situation that they're dealing with um, and understand the amount of people that they're impacting. Did you witness what you, I mean, did you, you know, I mean, I, I haven't seen, um, I will say that people should check out your, your Twitter at uh, Juniper L. Simonis uh, and, and go back because there's, there's remarkable videos on there. There's one I wanted to clarify with you, by the way. Is that you getting arrested like in Portland back? I think it was in May, uh, uh, like surrounded by like about 10 National Guardsmen, it looked like. Yeah. So that was me in July, July. Um, but yeah. Yeah. So you I mean, you've you've inserted yourself in situations where you found yourself become part of the story, so to speak here. Would you say in this incident outside Fred Meyer with regards to the police presence? What about the police action i mean was was it was it uh i don't know what word to use here but would, would, would you say did it escalate at any point or was this more just the presence of law enforcement or or the tone of it that that most had you speaking out in the way that you have been um yeah so it, it was the the presence of law enforcement the invocation of the just like severely bloated police department hmm. by private property um like to guard trash that could feed people that's right? just like the that, weird that's so weird it, it it's just unconscionable yeah. right like um 
But to me, right, like this is, it, it falls in line with what the police do now in Portland, which is like anytime somebody who is reasonably frustrated about the state of things breaks a window or like around the ice building, the ice rental property in South Portland on inauguration night where they unleashed probably close to a kilogram of active CS agent in a neighborhood right next to an elementary school and stuff. Um, that was all in response to somebody spray painting plywood on the outside of a building, not spray painting the building, spray painting plywood on the building, right? And so the, the police state, certainly in Portland, but broader than this, like obviously we know values property over people. And in this case, like to them, I could see this as like, it doesn't matter that it was a dumpster. Um, it doesn't matter that it was food. It doesn't matter that people are hungry. It doesn't matter that people that are hungry could be fed by their salaries that they're taking to come and guard this property. All that mattered to them was a private company con quote unquote concerned about the safety of their employees and their property um, called them. Look and they were photos. willing and ready to jump to action. And despite there being uh, like a power outage that's still 100,000 100, homes and businesses in Portland right now are still without power, or the Portland area right now are still without power. At this time, it was in the 200,000s, I think, or upper 100,000s. Yeah. Um, despite all of that, despite there being like horrible response times for any kind of crime or any kind of response to 911, right? Anything like that, they sent 12 officers yeah. to, to help nine employees against three people documenting them. Yeah, I just and and I know like, you know, in the interests of of, you know, reasonable back and forth and 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 making an effort to sort of try to understand an issue from different sides, I would say I I recognize that there could be a security issue in in a situation where there are literally tens or maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of groceries in dumpsters that are that are not I mean, there could be unsafe conditions. Maybe they can turn into a bit of a melee. People could get crushed. I mean, like I can understand there may be some need for some form of. But I mean, I've seen the videos you post. I've seen videos I've seen on HuffPost and and the Oregonian and, and all these I mean, outlets that are reporting on this. It doesn't appear to me that anyone was going crazy. We're showing video. This is your video right now. I mean, this yeah. uh, this just almost makes me. Ah, this is just a punch in the gut. It's just this is an indictment of all of us. And, yeah. you know, I feel like Juniper of Banksy's going to paint anything. I mean, how about how about a dumpster full of food surrounded by police officers? That that is a Banksy painting. Yeah, right there. Um, and, I, and I will point out that uh, Morgan from Team Raccoon, um, who was there right at the end of the the video um, who was one of the, like one of those three people who was there from the beginning videoing, um, put up stuff on their Insta live. And it was the reason why I like, because mm -hmm. we, we worked together was the reason why I knew that stuff was going down and needed to be over there to document things. Um, like uh, the amount of, 
food that's in here is just unconscionable. And um, the uh, the thing that got me, right? Like, so this entire time, I'm over there trying to document the police guarding things, right? Like, I am interested in supporting folks getting food out to people. I am interested in people being able to eat and, you know, survive. Um, but like the reason why I was there in particular initially was to document the police being there in an escalation of force, hmm. right? Like they showed up in, in massive numbers and I wanted to be able to document that. And again, you know, what weaponry are they bringing? Are they trying to deescalate the situation, et cetera? Um, you know, and I, I pull into the parking lot and, um, don't even go over near the dumpsters. So I didn't even really get a sense of quite how much food was in there. And if it was like trash underneath the food, right? And like, even when I got over there, the green dumpster, which is the one that's like a third full, you could see underneath it for like a lot of this stuff, right? Like you couldn't see in the back corner, but you could see a lot of the depth of it. So it's like, okay, that does look like all food. But in the orange one, which is the one that like is in that video when you open it up, um, like that one was full to the brim. And so I had no idea if it was like, you know, bags of trash underneath there yeah, and just food on the top. Right. And so when folks decided that like the easy way to access this was going to be through the side doors, which makes sense. Um, and they opened it. I didn't know what I was going to see. And the gut punch oh. and the just like crush of holy cow really what they did was go through all of their refrigeration and freezer spaces and grab everything yeah well that's a that's a that's a great insurance claim for fred meyer uh yeah. you know and i and i recognize like to be reasonable like i recognize that once refri- like you know no, once, totally. once once yeah, refrigeration's like, gone out the grocery store can't like you know switch to generators within 18 hours and then keep selling the deli meat i recognize there are issues here but the, there, there's a bigger picture conversation to have um which is i mean i you should see our like our live chat right now is you know this is great i mean john carlos says food waste is probably one of the biggest issues nobody talks about um says moreover 40 percent of all grains go to feeding lives livestock then that's also part of the waste uh, that's an interesting stat obviously i can't fact check it on the fly but that's interesting we are talking to a food scientist out of ucal davis uh later on today i'm looking forward to that we'll bring this up um mark b watching in from utah this morning says that's it. i mean perishable food you know he says can oftentimes be used by shelters soup kitchens Right. Um, You know, Crazy James says, yeah, some stuff can turn pretty quick, like go bad pretty quick. But it does look like a lot of stuff people could survive, you know, for at least a little while. People could safely take it home. Um, Heidi says Heidi says she used to work at a convenience store back in the day, says we'd take all of our leftover hot food uh, to a local community agency. Juniper here in Edmonton, Alberta, called the Boyle Street after my shift. She says my work actually encouraged it. Barry watching in from his goat barn today says uh, many food distributors have a system where farmers can take rejected food to feed to animals. So at least it's not all being wasted, which is interesting. Barry, let me let you know that we're going to be talking to a guest later on today about how feeding red seaweed to cattle can actually drop their methane emissions that's coming up a little later on in the show today interesting stuff but juniper it gives us a lot to think about it, it, i mean this is you know yeah. you've you've lit a fire under our audience this morning which is always a good thing it's the whole mandate 
Yeah. Um, and like, I'm really glad, like I said, you know, the, the comment sections have been radicalized um, in ways that I haven't seen. Like Andy No, the like notorious right wing grifter. Right. Who just put out this like false, falsehood laden book about Antifa. Uh, didn't he get kind of he got kind of beat up though was that that was in portland wasn't it like maced and... uh, yeah i mean like he didn't get beat up he got a milkshake thrown at him and some oh, okay uh, some silly string and glitter like he didn't get beat up oh he i got, thought that was like, i thought that was mace that was silly string that was silly string okay yeah, pardon me okay yeah. okay um uh like so yeah no and he he likes to mischaracterize were you everything. there uh, no, I wasn't there for that, but I've, I, I know plenty of people that were on the ground and I've seen all of the video and yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, the but Andy, no, you were going to say, sorry, I interrupted you. Oh, no, it's okay. Uh, so he has, uh, normally a very right wing comment section on his Twitter, right? Like, and so whenever he posts a picture of, like, so he posted a picture of Morgan and a picture of me, right? And it's like super transphobic stuff in response to me, but like also just like heavy right wing, Antifa's bad, blah, 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 right? Like they should all burn, they should all die from rotted food anyway, right? Like it was, would be like the normal comment section for an Andy thing, right? But like this one, yes, there was still the transphobia and there was still the one offer to like, Antifa should die. Homeless people should die from, you know, rotted meat or whatever. So that's fine. Let them eat it. So many were like, holy cow, this is really bad. Like, that's a lot of food waste. Like, why are there police guarding this? Like, so the it's been very interesting to see even in those spaces, people turn. And we've seen that here, like in Portland with the the powers to be, because uh the Portland police, generally speaking, will release, uh, they call them news releases um, that are laden with factual inaccuracies. And the media, um, like, you know, the local networks and sort of the paper of record, papers of record and stuff like that, will tend to parrot what the police say. Um, and thankfully, that didn't happen here. And there were folks um, like from the Oregonian that were on the ground pretty early um, and they broke the story and then, you know, like NBC broke some stuff and, you know, et cetera. And um, it was hilarious to see uh, Portland police's public information office, like try and play catch up and convince like NBC through like reply comments on tweets that, uh, they weren't guarding dumpsters, that they were called to prevent violence or whatever it was, right? Like that normally um, the main media defaults to believing the police. Here that did not happen, right? Like it's just so overwhelming the degree to which the, the police were misused in this situation yeah we have a even even though like the the normal propaganda outlets weren't weren't going to to bite we have kind of a like not it's not really similar but there's a there's a common 
thread happening here, I think, in, in, in our hometown of Edmonton. I didn't email you about this in our correspondence yesterday, but um, I'm not sure if you heard. But I, I know that, you know, some people are wondering why there's so many Oregonians without power right now as these rolling blackouts, same as the state of Texas and other American states have really been hit hard by this. Uh, we've just come through. We're kind of on the tail end of, a, of this wild weather. I mean, you know, we're talking like yeah. Arctic tundra type cold. And um, there were some houseless individuals uh, taking shelter in a transit station, actually being given some sandwiches and some soup. One of them didn't have a shoe on um, and police, you know, booted them from the transit station per protocol, per the orders they were issued. And we can get into all the nuances. But when it all comes down to it, you know, some people get off speeding tickets and some people don't. Let's just say police officers have, have employed and used discretion every single minute of every single shift. So I'm only going to buy that excuse to a certain degree. It takes a certain lack of humanity. I don't care what orders you've been given uh, to kick someone into minus 30 five uh especially without shoes on to, to pull a sandwich from their hand from their mouth literally to pull the sandwich out of their hand i mean that to me is just and and the interesting thing doctor is that uh, like i said um this interview is going a little longer than we asked you for i apologize we'll let you go at some point uh to get your day going but but i mean like we have a ton of messages from people that are like this is the first time i've spoken out against the police this is the first time i've ever written the chief of police a letter this is the first time that i've ever spoken publicly my husband is a police officer my dad was a police officer i respect the police i'm grateful for the police but this is bullshit and we're getting a ton of messages about that and it's a remarkable situation when that happens it says something yeah totally and you know this situation isn't qualitatively different right like this uh like food waste is happening all the time um police are called in store security is called in to guard food waste around the country, around the world, but certainly around like around North America. Um, and, uh, you know, it's often at a smaller scale and it's often, you know, when conditions are generally good for the general populace, but what, like what really tripped a lot of things here that, that, uh, got people's attention was the fact that, yeah, like there's power outages across the city and here it's even it's like we there weren't like ah, yeah like it wasn't like power was getting shut down or like rolling blackouty kind of thing so much as it was severely downed power lines um and like so portland doesn't have situations where trees come down more than you know a couple power outages more than a couple times a year, right? Like, so, you know, you'll get a power outage in a local area, but it'll just be like that one tree in that one old neighborhood that fell. But after the winter storm where there was just a massive amount of snow and ice on all the trees and then it melted um, because it had gotten just above freezing, all that stuff came crashing down. And so it was really like, Sunday and Monday when the thaw, the, the main thawing was happening when all the power went out. And so you have folks who had been, you know, on it, in addition to being locked in their house, basically because of COVID got locked in their house because of, you know, six inches or whatever of snow in a city that doesn't handle snow. Not used to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you shut their power off. Right. So they barely had any food maybe to begin with in the house that was like, you know, not canned and like long term sort of things. And then all of a sudden they've run out of it and then the power is out. 
And there are people whose power was out that were living in that neighborhood who like could have eaten that food, right? Like it, it's so, cl- and like we're talking about middle class and, you know, normal folks. We're not talking about you know, sort of the unseen poor or the houseless or whatever, where it's easy for people to ignore it. This was literally happening to, to so many people and cutting across um, you know, socioeconomic lines um, that I think that's uh, like a, a big aspect of it where it's like, oh, okay, like my grandma, right? Like I'm not saying this personally, but like somebody could be like, my grandma lives in that neighborhood and her power is out and somebody like, you know, she might be really hungry and want yeah. to, you know, get some food or whatever, right? Like, and there are so many I, angles here. I mean, even just, even Juniper, even just to suggest like, you know, the call could have been made to separate, like one of our uh, viewers, I apologize, I don't have the comment right in front of me, but one of our viewers said something along the lines of, there was such an opportunity here for Fred Meyer to do something so huge for the community, um, to be able to reach out to some sort of a, 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 a nonprofit, some sort of an inner city agency, some sort of a, a company that provides, I don't know, school lunches for kids, something to act quickly, yeah. to sift through what they could sift through, to throw out what they had to throw out and to explain it but to hold some sort of a news of it i mean i can think i can think of a hundred publicists that could cook this thing up in 10 minutes uh and that could have done something really big for the community and it's a missed opportunity it's a great talking point though i'm grateful that you were there to document it and i'm really grateful that you agreed to join us here to tell canada about this story from our southern neighbors uh in the great state of oregon juniper thank you so much for joining us this morning we really appreciate your insight yeah, thank you very much for having having me and for for helping to tell this story. Because yeah, it's it's egregious and it's disgusting, and you're exactly right that you know that food could have gone before it even got in the dumpster. Like yeah. the amount of time and money spent putting the food in the dumpster could have been used to get the food ready for shelters, right? But they didn't do anything like that. And and the the thing that's so so Ah, frustrating is because of the winter storm, folks were getting uh, off the streets into warming shelters. The warming shelters have had to get closed because there aren't enough volunteers, yet the city is paying police to go do this, right? Like there were the first couple nights of the warming shelters, like they didn't have enough food. Like the mutual aid organizations that helped cover people eating and getting their stuff taken care of during the wildfires in the summer were helping out again and like providing food at the warming shelters because there wasn't food, right? Like, so there's so many situations there where there, there were huge opportunities for them to turn this into something good. Literally every, every, every time you say something, it like makes me more upset. There's more. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to do it once more. Okay. We got to go one more time. (laughs) One more time. Um, So like you're talking about, um, you know, the police taking a sandwich out of somebody's hand or whatever, right? Like folks were taken into warming shelters and then police swept encampments. So police swept encampments. Well, folks were not there because it was unsafe for them to be in the outside space. Thank you for your uh, continued advocacy. Uh, I mean it. And I want to encourage people. People have to follow you on Twitter at Juniper L. Simonis. Uh, Dr. Simonis is uh, 
A PhD out of Cornell, owner and lead scientist of Dapper Stats, founder of the Chemical Weapons Research Consortium. Uh, you can find them on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thank you for this. Really, really. I mean, the insight's incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me you and got for, it. for getting the story out there. And uh, yeah, have a, have a lovely rest of your morning. You as well. Shout out to Portland. Uh, can't wait to get back down there. Portland's an incredible city. You know, like one other, as Dr. Simonis kept bringing up more and more points, like sweeping, I mean, not volunteers at the shelters. So they have to close the shelters. And there's, You know, I'm just even thinking, just to state the obvious for a second, like when they said, uh, you know, the effort like the, the, of throwing all the food into the dumpster could have been helped to help the nonprofits to get the food. Uh, and I'll recognize some of you going to write in and say, hey, listen, food goes bad. We can have that conversation. This is a home of reasonable dialogue. Absolutely. 100 percent. If you want to take the completely contrarian position of what you've just heard, would love it, would welcome it. But I even think of the of the, the staff members at Fred Meyer that are tasked with throwing out thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of food. And what are they making? Like, are they probably, you know, probably right around minimum wage or, or, or you know, maybe a bit over minimum wage? These aren't yeah. people. They're not making 100 grand a year. I mean, there's there's probably single parents there that have their kid in daycare that are barely able to afford the cost of living. Maybe they're working overtime to try to keep the lights on. And their job is to throw out 150 pounds of prime rib. Yeah, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. And I mean, I I hope some of the employees just took that food home. I hope they went rogue. I really do. Yeah, I mean, you know, these are the types of stories where you find out like, you know, man, man took four racks of ribs and gave them to homeless guys and lost his job. Like, you know what I mean? These are the types of stories. I just I mean it when I say that this is it's art is what it is, not in a good way, but art is as like, you know, what's the uh, the hieroglyphics back in the day that like we take a look at the ancient Egyptians and we we draw what we can from their society, where their priorities were, how they treated people, what the class structure looked like by those hieroglyphics on the wall. And I just think that I mean, if you, I'm, I'm sure, you know, if you're watching Real Talk, you probably know who Banksy is. If you don't know who Banksy is, uh, welcome to a, a whole new world of exploring Banksy's art. But but that is a Banksy painting, you know. Uh, nine or 12 police officers armed guarding a dumpster full of food. I just, you know, uh, we'll get to some of your comments on this plus your emails. But first, of course, we want to remind you what a perfect time. Well, I think it's I think this is a perfect time to remind you how excited we are to have local waste on board. Is it OK if I transition from a dumpster grocery store into local waste? I think it is because I know that they have a heart for community and a community connection. I know the owners personally, and if you do business with them, you'll know them personally as well. That's how they roll. It's how they've rolled for more than 25 years. Chris and Lauren Labas here would love to hear from you if you have a small or large size business. 780-242-9746 is the number to get them at directly or localwaste.ca. They love to talk trash. Our trash talk, by the way, scheduled for tomorrow. Your chance to get whatever off your chest is, is shaping up to be a doozy, but it's not too late to send us your email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Also wanted to remind you, speaking of grocery, the team at Friesen Brothers. How about that? A grocery sponsor and a dumpster sponsor after a store about dumpsters outside grocery stores. Friesen Brothers getting set to open their 15th location, and it's in the city of Edmonton for the very first time. It's opening March 5th, just off the handy at Rabbit Hill Road. It's going to turn the grocery game upside down and reinvent it. We're talking craft beer on tap, a grill, a fabulous Forno pizza oven, a spot where your family can hang out and have dinner by a fireplace. They sell groceries too, right? They do sell groceries as well. (laughs) 
This is going to be my plan. We'll go as a family. It'll be a family outing. Carrie can do the grocery shopping if she likes, only because she wants to, not because I'm assigning the role. And then I can hang out and sip craft beer by the fireplace. It sounds like a pretty good deal for me. I'm going to take Carrie's side on this one. I find grocery shopping quite relaxing. Oh, she, oh, she, I'm, d- I'm the guy that she doesn't trust me. Oh, yeah. Like if we need something on like a Sunday morning, I have no problem rolling into the store and picking up breakfast. I love grocery shopping. My thing about grocery shopping, um, you know, because it's legal now, I can just say these things. Uh, smoking, a, we're hearing some other music coming through. You hearing that? Maybe it's like, there we go. Right I, back I hit at the it. news button, which is right next to the transition button. Were you trying to send me a message that we're 18 <laughs> minutes late for a newscast? I could, I'm going to live in ish time. We do live in ish time. I was just going to say, smoking one and going grocery shopping? Pfft, you kidding me? Uh, Penny says, you know, in the last week, um, I've heard homeless people referred to as houseless. Is this a new thing? I don't know if it's a new thing. All I know is that several people reached out to me and 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 said, hey, Ryan, like, want you to think about the language that you use. And I put some thought into it. And then Blake Desjardins yesterday uh, on the show uh, basically said, um, he said, like, houseless is is the word because a lot of these uh, of these people that are that are without shelter right now are at home. They're home. This is their homeland. He talked about his uncle, Pierre. It was a beautiful I mean, it's a tragic story. Pierre died on the street. Um, and it's and, it, and I think it's it's obviously informed a lot of of um, of Blake's thoughts and positions and, and probably his, where his heart is at with regards to social justice, uh, as would be the case with anybody that loses a family member or that has walked a mile in, in, in someone else's shoes. But he's, he explained it. He said that he's, he's, he was at home. Pierre was at home, you know, with Treaty 6, Treaty 7, Treaty 8, whatever, or, or whether you're indigenous background or not, you, you are. This is your home, but you don't have a house. And I kind of I thought that makes absolutely perfect sense. Um, so I, I just on the fly decided that I'm going to change my language on that because it just makes more sense to me. So, um, you know, you do you, uh, I love this. People are chiming in though on, on food waste, you know, really interesting comments here. And, uh, and some of you are, of course are, are talking about the, the policing stories closer to home, which is understandable as well. Um, Heidi's watching. She says, when we visited New York, we were stunned. She says all caps. We were stunned at the amount of day old baked goods put out on the street at night. Uh, it says explains the rats, but we couldn't help but ask, why is this stuff not being donated? Right. Why wouldn't they donate it? Chad says there, there's there's was like no thought put into any value capture to support community with this issue in Portland. It is such a, a tragedy. You know, Samira is wondering, couldn't the city of Portland, like maybe elected officials or someone organize something with grocery stores for food intended for disposal? Emma wonders, what if companies just put a sign on their dumpster that said, hey, if you eat food out of here, that's at your own risk, bro. That from Emma. I know that we've talked to when I on my previous radio show, I talked to a, a guy. I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. I can't, but he basically feeds. He's a fascinating guy. I'll see if I can track him down. I'd love to check in with him again, but he, he feeds himself via dumpsters. And, and it was in a really interesting conversation. And he was like, he said, like, groceries are expensive. But I but money's not the number one reason why I do this. He said, if you can get if you can get over the hump of, of what sort of how, you know, the idea that you're getting into a dumpster to get your food. He was like, the food is good. It's not rotten. Um, he said, I eat well. He, I remember that he laid out, gave us an idea of what he had eaten that week and what he had pulled out of the dumpster, and what he'd actually paid for. And he had paid for very little. And he just said, people don't realize how much food we throw out. And there's our, our psyche, our collective psyche requires a major 
reset. And, and the interview made an impression on me. You know, this the whole yeah, idea about I, food waste. Well, we, we I mean, ignore it. I've I think I think food waste is like the world's most solvable problem. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it literally is. There's extra food here and there's hungry people here. And like this happens everywhere all over the world. So much food is wasted. The thing that is sticking in my head a little bit, and this is, you know, a slight at the management of Fred Meyer is is just the cost. Because like I have in the course of my life both rented a large truck and rented a dumpster for a project. And a dumpster is like four times the cost of a truck that would hold that much food to ship it down to a shelter. So like it just like it blows my mind like the staff guarding it the cost of the dumpsters itself the fact that they had to bring the police in like it just they're willing to pour money on getting this food out of people's hands. Yeah, and I want to keep saying because it is relevant and I think we're we're going to be naive if we don't acknowledge that there are some things that would be non-starters. Okay, depending on how long the power's been out. I mean, I'm thinking of like, you know, fresh shrimp rings, stuff like that. Maybe some deli meats, uh, maybe some 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 dairy. There's going to be things that are that are non-starters. Obviously, a lot of maybe some I I don't know. Um, You know, some of you are making points saying, well, if Portland's got these rolling blackouts due to extreme winter weather, stuff's probably not going bad that quickly either in the dumpster. There are going to have to be some judgment calls here. You may have to have some sort of a public health official. Obviously, we know that generally speaking, once you do involve the bureaucracy though that's where everything's going to hit a wall you know what i'd love to hear from and and, and perhaps we'll follow up on this we cover as many stories as we can in this small but mighty show but i would love to check in with with portland social agencies and see how they're wrapping their minds around this and what they could have done to mobilize i want to get to your emails talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can reach us yesterday's show is a special one the guest lineup was remarkable. There were some technical difficulties that we were battling against, but it was strengthening our resolve. You were there with us. Can I just tell you, you're like in our corner. You're like you're you're the you're the ones with the water bottle that like, you know, you take that, uh, you know, you watch a boxer that's just getting their face blown up. And then the trainer comes in with that flat tool and like flattens the things. So they don't get a fat, you know, a swollen eye. They, and then they cover it with Vaseline and then they squirt the water in the mouth and slap them on the back and back out they go. That was you to us yesterday, and we appreciate it. Crazy James. And again, I'm going to read what you've written. So this is not for kids. Crazy James says, Jess, well, I don't even know if you're going to read this before you go on the air today. I did, pal, he says, but I hope you do. Says you closed out yesterday's show. You said you were fucking pissed. Uh, you, of course, are more than justified in feeling that way. We're talking about the Edmonton policing story. He says, I sure was. Uh, and so was my mom when I told her about it, when I told her about your show. Thanks, James. He says, don't you dare apologize, not for any of it. I don't. He says, you know, use that anger with your skills as as a journalist and get the story out. Get the chief of police, get the head of transit, get the mayor, get them all at the same time. If you can, somebody has to answer for what happened. And I don't think that any traditional media outlet will push those individuals like you will. The incident demands consequences. And I have faith that it's you that can get that job done. James says, I'll see you in the chatterbox. All right, pal. I appreciate this one. This is, this is a longer one. Uh, this is from Ryan. He says, I appreciate the passion that you demonstrated on Wednesday's show when talking about the houseless and how society treats them. I'm a paramedic, says Ryan. I've worked in Edmonton for almost 15 years, many of those years downtown. Now, when I first started in Edmonton in 06, Ryan, you and I moved here at the same time. He says, I was young. I'd previously never had any interaction with, with houseless folks except for seeing them on the sidewalk as I drove by. I didn't understand 
Now, things like addiction, mental health, systemic racism could keep people in a perpetual cycle of poverty. I remember being surprised at the humanity, the kindness they all showed one another. They were real people, families and friends. I was devastated after responding to a call, a person who had frozen to death from being outside after a cold snap. I've gone and responded to calls, people with uh, fingers and toes and hands and even their entire arms frozen solid like a block of ice. This is from a paramedic. As Canadians, we all know about cold weather, but there's a big difference from running out to your heated car and having a limb frozen solid because you don't have a place to go. I got into this profession to help people, and I've always thought of myself as a good person. Call volumes have steadily increased and as have hospital wait times, and we've done more with less and we've had less time to recover between calls. And I realized at one point that I was losing my compassion and I was looking at people in the streets and shelters, not as humans, but as a waste of our resources, as people who were getting in the way of me helping other people who deserved my efforts. And I remember yelling at people for wasting my time. I didn't like who I'd become. I could no longer say I was compassionate and wanted to help people. Luckily, I was able to step back and work in different areas. I was able to work on myself and rediscover my compassion and find my kindness again. I recognize that I, as a straight white male, have immense privilege, and there are many out there who are not afforded the same opportunities as me. A coworker of mine once told me that we are only one slip in the shower away from becoming homeless ourselves. We like to think that the reason we're not homeless or on the streets is because we work hard when in fact a lot of it is luck. And I think about it every day. I would like to believe that the officers that kicked people out into the cold were once good people. I'm in no way excusing what they did, but a part of me sees myself in them. I hope they'll be able to find their kindness and their empathy again. It takes hard work and self-reflection sometimes the systems that we work and live in don't allow for that kind of change and we need people to stand up and demand those systemic changes we need people like you ryan to keep shining a light on the injustice he says your show is going to show us how we can be better how we can hold ourselves to a higher bar and how we can reflect on the privilege we have been given from one ryan to another wow how about this from finbar Finbar says, thanks for your great work holding Edmonton police feet to the fire. Absolutely right. There should be real consequences for both the officers and the people who gave them those orders. It's awesome to see somebody with a large, somewhat mainstream platform holding police to account. Finbar says it was powerful hearing you talk about your experience with your son. If you didn't see it yesterday, very quickly, I said just over the weekend, this is a real experience. Just a, it was like 72 hours ago or something like that. We're, we're out walking our dogs, my boy and I, as soon as it was warm enough to do so in a police cruiser drove past i said why look and he waved and the police officers lit up the cherries they lit up the lights and then whoop whoop gave him the siren and why it was just thrilled and i went on to say that you know why it's five and, and although by the way his kindergarten teacher has been doing an amazing job with black history month why it came home talking to us about martin luther king jr and 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 i mean it was just I, it blew my mind what they're getting into in kindergarten it was incredible but still Wyatt hasn't really had it explained to him quite yet. Now he has it pretty good. And Finbar says, you know, hearing you talk about your experience with your son, I'm in, I'm in a similar boat myself. Affluent white guy grew up affluent white. My wife is black, though. And I'm absolutely terrified when I think of what our future kids will experience going through society and the, the trauma that they'll experience at, 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 potentially at the hands of police officers. 
like those callous officers who turfed those unhoused people into the cold. It says your rant at the end of the episode yesterday was so on point. Every year, stuff like this happens to our unhoused members of the community, and the rest of us forget about it when spring comes, and it's utterly disgraceful. Just a great fucking episode. Keep up the great work. That from Finbar. Thank you. And I love this from Tom. Uh, we're going to move on in just a second. We can get back to more of your emails. Don't worry. We've got a ton of them. But I love this from Tom. Tom wrote us this after Tuesday's show. Tuesday's show on the, the heels of that long weekend was was jammed. Like, I, you know, Tuesday's show was kind of a little uh, it was a little tough to keep up with because we had Irene DeShane on. The Supreme Court had just ruled in her favor against the, the Archdiocese of London. She's fighting the Catholic Church in court. Right. She's a sexual abuse survivor. Uh, she was on with her lawyer, Loretta Merritt, heavy subject matter, obviously. Right out of that, we go to the story of how Redgers Public School Board says no to Pride Week. They say Diversity Week instead. We talked to the trustee that tried to make Pride happen, Diane McCauley and Dr. Christopher Wells, co-founder of Pride Tape. Then we go straight into our doctor's roundtable with doctors Shazma Mathani, Lenora Saxinger, and Darren Markland, right? Fact-checking Drew Barnes and, and Lieutenant Colonel David Redmond, talking about COVID protocols, government response, etc. Then, oh yeah, by the way, Emily Bazelon from the Slate podcast joins us, Political Gab Fest. I mean, Emily was a huge get for us. And then Russ McMeekin, the CEO of mCloud Technologies on why they moved to Calgary. The first time we've ever had nine guests in one show. And at the end of the show, when Sam and I were kind of catching our breath, I thought, you know, I was riding a bit of a high from the caliber of guests that we had. But I thought what's regrettable is we really didn't hear from our, our listeners, our viewers. I try to incorporate your comments from our Twitter hashtag Real Talk RJ or, or from our live chat as well as as often as we can. But it was one to another to another to another. And Tom wrote in and this resonated with me and I wanted to read it. Tom says, I really like the shows where you take your time and when you let people talk and emote, I love that verb. He says, it seems to me that this comes from an unhurried approach, allowing the guests time to do exactly that. He says, Tuesday's show was interesting. It was challenging and it covered many important areas. But in my opinion, too many. Tom says, I prefer the shows that allow guests to speak without pressures of time because it gives me time to hear and process and understand intense and important subjects like sexual abuse and pandemic response and economic expansion. They could have all benefited from more time. And then Tom, in true Canadian fashion, please, in no way does this indicate I am unhappy with your show. Tom's so polite. He says, much to the contrary. He says, I support and I watch your show as much as I can. And this criticism will not change that. Tom, that's an amazing email. I totally appreciate it. And, and we, Sam, we kind of felt the same way a little bit, didn't we? Yeah, for sure. So I was like, just checking some background at, stuff here. At um, the end of the show, I think we both kind of went, it was amazing. Like you kind of I mean I'm so torn on this because I don't want to say that was too much But after that show it's just like I I don't know which way is up and down right now Like my head is yeah. spinning like we just we bounced around so many places on Tuesday's show But it was great. It was it was fantastic. Yeah, and I and I, and I totally felt the same way So uh, all of this to say Tom and everybody else the thousands of you that watch and and, and listen every day And it's just that blows our minds uh, You know, we're like 10 weeks old We want to hear what you would like to see on the show. We want to know what you would do differently. I've always been this way for, for a 15 year broadcasting career. People would come up and say, Oh, we love, we watch breakfast television every morning or we love the Ryan Jesperson show 
on that other radio station or we watch real talk and we love it and 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 if you know because if you've ever come up to me and said i don't say oh thank you very much thank you very much it's, you know what's the first thing i say to you the first thing i say to you is thank you very much what's one thing you'd change I want to hear from the hardcores. I want to hear from the people that make this appointment tuning. I want to hear from the real talkers. What's one thing you would change about the show? Uh, We're going to talk about sustainable beef. Can it actually be a thing in just a second? Is the good doctor set to go here? All right. Very quickly, let me remind you that this show would not be on the air without the support of our amazing partners like the team at Grand Dog Essentials, quality raw dog food. This is what we feed our dogs and we've fed our dogs this quality raw food way before I had a business relationship with Grand Dog. The reason why we're partnered together is because we're walking in a journey together of family-owned small businesses. This team, the Monsma is amazing. They deliver to your doorstep. If you're in Calgary, Edmonton, the Red Deer area, central Alberta, they'll deliver whenever you need it. We get the delivery two, three times a month, depending uh, when our freezer needs to be filled. And the health benefits that we've seen Our holistic veterinarian lets us know that the food is doing wonders for our beloved family members, Moses and Monroe. If you use the promo code REALTALK, you're going to get 10% off your first order. You can link to Grand Dog Essentials under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We're also thrilled to have Eden Landscaping on board. This is a team. Check them out at landscapeedmonton.ca. Their work speaks for itself. They've been doing it for more than 20 years. Carrie and I are already kind of dreaming, like, what could we maybe do to reinvent our backyard space? We got the perennials that come up. They're great. We got a couple nice trees, but like, let's maximize our space. You need a fresh set of eyes. The expert landscape designers that can also do the actual work. They design, then they dig, let's say, at Eden Landscaping. You can check them out again under our sponsors tab. Well, there's a bit of a theme to today's show. Like we told you, uh, Dr. Uh, Juniper Simonis was booked because of a guest uh, or rather an audience member's suggestion. That's the exact same uh, thing with our next guest. Uh, Darren wrote in after trash talk on Friday. You remember there was a little there was one in there was only about two sentences uh, where the guy said there's no such thing as sustainable beef. He like lit a little fire and then he walked away from it. And of course, I thought we're going to hear from some folks on this. And we heard from Darren and I love this. He says just a quick note on that, that email from Jared during trash talk talking about sustainable beef. He says that the Canadian roundtable for sustainable beef, which is what that McDonald's advertisement about is definitely not bullshit. Like Jared said, he says, I think it would be a great topic for you to explore. Darren says, now I'm a grain farmer, so I'm not an expert in beef production, but I have had an opportunity to see a couple presentations and I've seen some great collaborations between uh, ranchers and, and researchers and then end users like restaurants he says, I feel like there's a lot of documentaries out there that are kind of one sided, like cowspiracy. And it's and it's led to a lot of people deciding that it's just gospel truth that beef production's awful and that it's the number one cause of climate change. Darren says now beef production definitely does have an environmental impact like all forms of agriculture and virtually everything that humans do. And there are things that can improve its sustainability says but but what i would ultimately recommend is that you check to you check in with a professor at the university of california at uc davis uh dr frank mitteloner who does work on greenhouse gas emissions from cattle and he's done a great job of putting the whole story into perspective well 
We immediately sent an email to the good doctor, a professor and air quality expansion extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science. He got back to us in 10 minutes and said he would be delighted uh, to join this prairie podcast, Canada's most listened to. And it's a real pleasure, uh, doctor, to welcome you to the show. Thanks for being here on Real Talk. Thank you very much for having me. Frank, did I pronounce your surname correctly? I want to make sure I do. People call me all kinds of names. Mikluna is the right way. <laughs> okay, great. So let's let's set the scene here because you know you know exactly who you're talking to. We're coming to you from the province of Alberta. I know you did your PhD at Texas Tech. You've been around a lot of ranchers. You've seen a lot of cattle. Uh, where does this conversation need to start? Is sustainable beef an oxymoron, or can it be possible? No, it's not an oxymoron at all. It's uh, what beef production is and should be. Um, the area where you are at used to be prairie forever. I mean, long before the white settlers from Europe came to Canada, came to the United States, those areas that you are in were roamed by large ruminants, by bison, by antelope, and so on. And in fact, if you look at the numbers of large ruminants today versus the numbers of large ruminants 150, 200 years ago, they were roughly the same. So uh, I can tell you that the landscape that your beef producers are occupying with ranches has been in that kind of land use for hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years, maybe longer. Sustainable beef is absolutely something that can be done. And um, you know, taking care not just of animals, but also of the plant communities and of the soils helps us to put a lot of carbon away in the ground, a process called carbon sequestration. Mix that with reducing the so-called enteric emissions, meaning what comes out of the front end of an animal, which can be done through feed additives and so on. And we can actually see a very different picture compared to what people hear in the media. So I, I wanted to do some, you know, a decent amount of background research here. So I wasn't asking you the most elementary questions, but uh, but I know you'll recognize you're talking to an audience here of lay persons that don't have the, the maybe the depth of knowledge you do. So, um, you know, basically, my understanding is that it's, it's estimated there are approximately one point five billion cattle on the face of the earth that, that cows emit that, that the number one cause for concern here would be the methane, uh, which is quite a, uh, has the potential to be quite a damaging uh, greenhouse gas the most damaging of the greenhouse gases, if I understand correctly. And one stat that I saw, this was per a NASA report. Uh, this is out of two, from 2006, I'll acknowledge, um, was that, that the, the average cow's uh, methane emissions equal one vehicle burning about a thousand liters of gasoline per year. Do, do those sort of bullet point statistics line up with the facts that you might have in front of you? No. <laughs> the short answer is no. So first of all, uh, total number of cattle, that's correct. Uh, the vast majority of these uh, bovines are in developing countries. And the reason why their numbers are so large in those countries is because these animals are relatively unproductive. So for example, it takes about 20 cows in India to produce the same amount of milk as one cow here in California. The same is true in many other developing countries. And in order to satisfy the nutritional needs of the populations, they grow their herds, and that's a problem. In most developed countries, um, the trend is reversed. We have shrunk our herds drastically. And when you shrink uh, methane production, something beautiful happens. So first of all, methane is indeed a potent greenhouse gas. Not the most potent one, but a potent one. Um, but it is 
very different compared to, let's say, the other greenhouse gases, CO2, nitrous oxide, and so on. And so far, that methane is not just produced, but methane is also naturally destroyed. A process called oxidation destroys methane, and that happens in 10 years. So while CO2 is up in the air for a thousand years, it's pretty much there forever once we put it out, once we burn fossil fuels, let's say. Methane is both produced and destroyed. And that's a beautiful thing because it gives us a great opportunity. What it means is if we manage to keep our herds constant, constant, and we have been in a place like Canada or the United States for a long time, then the amount of methane produced and the amount of methane destroyed are roughly in balance, meaning constant cattle herds do not add to additional carbon. Hence, they do not add to additional warming. Increasing cattle herds do, and we don't want that. Decreasing amounts of methane give us a huge opportunity because if we reduce methane, for example, by feeding feed additives to cattle or using digesters for animal manure or so, if we reduce methane, we pull carbon out of the atmosphere, which leads to negative warming, a fancy word for cooling. This is the type of thing I think it's going to be blowing a lot of people's minds because the general public doesn't have a real awareness, number one, maybe of the potential problems, maybe number two of the steps that are being taken to address this, and maybe even some of the gains that have been made. There are researchers like yourself, and then there's industry. Uh, Frank, what role has industry? Is there is there an appetite, so to speak, within industry? Like, you know, I have Kim, for example, here who says, you know, Kim says she comes from a ranching family. She says that, you know, the, the way that that my family, she says, you know, one of the collaborative beef ranchers working with these big restaurants like like McDonald's is, is really remarkable. She says they're stewards of the land. Ranchers are eco warriors. They're saving our landscapes and they do much more than raise beef. She says my dad was a land hero. Do you note that? I mean, is there is there an appetite? appetite here for the people that the beef producers themselves to to be part of the solution i have no doubt okay i have no doubt about that there are two sectors in society that are not just producers of greenhouse gases but also a significant sink of greenhouse gases that's forestry and agriculture these mm. two and to not invite those operators of these lands to the table and invite them to work with you on further reductions is bewildering to me, okay? The farmers are not just the ones that put the food on your table every day, therefore they are of strategic importance to all of us, but secondly, they are a significant solution provider. We must have them at their table or at our table, uh, at the table, so to say, uh, and, and have them help us further reduce carbon emissions by sequestration, by reducing methane and so forth. Now, just think about it. Reducing methane pulls carbon out of the atmosphere, similarly to what we do when we plant trees. These trees then pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere as well. Okay, so we can do that. We have shown that it works here in California. Our livestock sector has reduced methane by 25%. That's a strong reduction leading to negative warming, meaning cooling. So the same can be done in Alberta. And I invite you, I hope that your farmers and ranchers don't view this as a threat scenario, this discussion around methane, but as a super opportunity because you can do a huge additional service to your society by help 
uh, in the fight against climate change. Yeah. And I think, I mean, to, to state the obvious, uh, when an industry gets ahead of an issue or acknowledges an issue and says, we're going to be part of the solution here, it goes a long way in earning or maintaining the public trust. I mean, it might be an obvious statement, but we don't always see it. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a professor here at UC Davis, and in addition to doing outreach and research, I also teach, of course. I take classes of students out to commercial ranches and farms and so on. And so one of those visits is to a standard ranch here in the neighborhood. And I have the rancher talk to those students about his land management. And so he talks about the soils, the microbiology in the soil, uh, what kind of plants grow there, what kind of uh, weeds on the one hand that are undesirable, but also uh, forages that are desirable, uh, the grazing pressure that he exerts with his animals, how he manages everything and so on. And these students are just, they are so quiet, you could hear a pin drop fall. Why? Because never before have they had an ecology lecture like that. A lecture given by a person who is not an academic, but who just does what he does day in, day out. After we do this field trip, I ask these students, tell me one land use that anyone could do on that plot of land that this rancher operates that would be more sustainable than what you just saw. One, give me one land use that results in the production of food. Over the last 20 years, I've been at UC Davis and asked that question. I haven't had a single student who came up with a more sustainable way of operating that land. I want to get to some of our uh, live chat uh, comments here. <laughs> AB is watching and simply says, I feel like a ribeye uh, right now. That makes two of us. I'm, th- I'm thinking three. a ribeye, three of us at least, probably the good doctor as well. Four um, steak and eggs maybe would be nice. Daniel says one of the main reasons I got into beef is because it's a way of life. And the angle on soil conservation. That's an interesting point. Um, you know, uh, maybe maybe you can touch on this from from is it Etrium says one big thing is the breeds of cattle, the beef we're raising. Some sadly, the largest majority breeds are the worst for inefficiency of production. Is that accurate? Well, there are differences across breeds, that's for sure. Some breeds are more effective, more efficient uh, feed conver- converters than others. But um, I think more important than the breed is uh, that whatever breed it might be, that you have a good genetic merit in your in your stock, one that makes those animals efficient. And uh, by and large, we have that here in North America. Um, we don't have it in many developing countries, and that's actually of grave concern. And and those people who are critical of livestock, you might have noticed, always use global numbers. They use the global impact of livestock on climate. They don't use the Alberta impact of livestock on climate or the California impact of livestock on climate. Why don't they? Because in Alberta or in California, beef cattle uh, contribute to approximately 2% of total greenhouse gas emissions. Our uh, critics much rather use the global number, which is 14.5% for all livestock. And that's the number you read in the media day in, day out. It is disingenuous and it is not really helping our farmers Uh, doing what's right and continuing to further reduce. And that's what I'm all about. I want to make very clear, methane is a potent greenhouse gas, and my entire research program is on how to further reduce it. But let's be honest about it. The source that we are criticizing here produces something to the order of 2% of total greenhouse gases. Fossil fuels like oil, coal, and gas are responsible for 80%, 80%. So those people who compare a cow versus a car, 
do the community society a great disservice by comparing something that's coming from the ground that's uh, extracted from the ground and blown up burnt going into the atmosphere that's a one-way street versus something that's circling around and around and around from atmospheric co2 to plant carbohydrates to methane to atmospheric co2 again uh, Dr. Mitloner, I'm going to do something completely unfair here, and that's read a whole bunch of comments that have nothing to do with one another, except for they all fall under the umbrella of agriculture. And then I'm going to ask you to respond. Uh, some uh, random guy on our chat uh, says tilling says I'm all for no till. This is talking about soil management. Obviously, tilling is apparently a huge contributor to carbon carbon emissions because it messes up the complex soil ecosystem. And then tilled soil has the potential to produce worse quality crops brandon says can't we just invest more in fake meat the meats the cell growth says all of this feels so wasted and pointless emma says this is fascinating emma says i used to work in sustainability and i always thought that cattle ranching equals methane equals climate change equals bad news bears emma says thank you for bringing on this guest and challenging my assumptions some interesting points there. Why don't we start with no-till uh, soil management? You touched on that earlier. You've talked about the theory of the carbon sink. I've heard a lot of people in our neck of the woods. You know that we're only a three, four-hour drive from from the oil sands, um, and uh, you know a lot of people have said the fact that Fort McMurray is surrounded by boreal forests should absolve Canadians of of some of the the impetus we may feel to take more meaningful or leadership action on climate change. Um, I realize I'm opening up cans of worms as I'm asking you these questions, but when it comes to soil management and no-till i would imagine you have an informed perspective on that yeah let's start with a ranch okay a ranch is generally not tilled okay a ranch is a place that that's uh, that's vegetation um and um we don't really do much with the soil itself and so uh the carbon that the plants suck in during photosynthesis the co2 that goes into the plants ends up in the roots and goes from the roots into the soil where it's sequestered. That's called carbon sequestration. So if you don't disrupt the soil, the carbon stays in there forever. Tilling, unfortunately, releases that carbon. So if you have a, a row crop, let's say, and you grow whatever soy or corn or something else, uh, then the plants, of course, also take on CO2 during their growth cycle. But once you harvest the plants and you then till the soil, the carbon that was previously sequestered in the ground now comes out. So minimum till or no till indeed has a very advantageous effect on soil health and on carbon storage. To, um, to our friend uh, on the fake meat um, uh, question there, uh, I have a beef with that. Uh, I don't think I don't think that um, that these alternatives will have a future um, by which they will replace animal source foods. There have always been people consuming meat alternatives, and they should, of course, have that alternative. Um, but you know, even after years and years of intense uh, advertisement, uh, we now have approximately zero point five percent of all protein sales in the United States being plant alternatives. 99.5% are the original. The question is not, can we replace meat with meat alternatives? The question is, how can we um, make sure that meat production is as sustainable as it can be? And we have seen enormous gains, enormous gains in countries like Canada and the United States. And uh, it is our farmers doing that, our farmers, our ranchers doing that. They need further help because they are 
critically important to our countries. There are two sectors that are of critical importance to our societies, the health sector and the food sector. Mm -hmm. And the farmers we are dealing with and who we are arguing on behalf of all the time, they are of strategic importance. Don't ever forget that. We need to work with them and not against them. I want to read a, a couple of tough ones here, a couple fastballs for you, Dr. Um, Emma says meat production and consumption at its current level is not sustainable. It is absolutely detrimental to the environment. Full stop. This is like trying to make the case for fossil fuels in 2021. This is asinine. Uh, we've also got a comment here from Vince who says, let's touch on the fact that hormones from feedlots can make their way into our drinking water. There are documented effects of the development of fish and amphibians downstream. We'd be fools to think that humans are immune from this impact. Um, do these concerns resonate with you? Are these valid? Um, so first of all, the second one here, uh, I have looked into growth implants in beef cattle in feed in feedlots. And um, obviously when you put those implants in their ear, um, you have to have a 50 or 60 day withdrawal period after they were implanted. At the time of uh, slaughter, those residues, hormone residues, are below detection of any of our GCMSs. We cannot really find them in the meat after the withdrawal time has passed. And um, if you were to take a birth control pill, let's say, a regular birth control pill uh, versus a three-ounce serving of beef, you would take a 30,000 times larger hormone dose into your body um, when taking the pill versus eating the beef. So I think that this argument of hormones in beef is one that's pretty much overblown, okay? So that's my personal opinion. The, the other one, Emma's comment, I'm sorry, what was that? Well, basically, uh, she's just saying that she doesn't think that meat production or at least animal meat production is sustainable. I don't have the comment. She basically says it's, it's like trying to argue about, you know, argue for fossil fuels in 2021. She says it's not sustainable. I think the, the bigger picture on our live chat, the, there's a conversation underway, and I've just been dropping in on it. But people are talking about meat substitutes. The, several people have said yeah. that they, they think that you and I are focusing on the wrong thing. They're saying that we should be talking more about how to eliminate animal proteins from our diet yeah i hear those people they are a relatively small minority that's very vocal and that tells us we should all go plant-based or uh, even further go vegan uh, and it's their right to do so and it's a good thing for them to do it for whatever reason um, uh, if they pull out the climate the climate card uh, then i have news for them and that news is uh, you'll be surprised that this methane card that you've been playing for the longest time is about to go away because we are rethinking methane in a way that you wouldn't believe. If you uh, want to get a little uh, education on this, you go to YouTube and you Google rethinking methane and you will get a five minute video that I produced with my center uh, that will tell you um, how the understanding of methane, and that's the 800 pound gorilla within the livestock arena, how our understanding of methane and its impact on climate has evolved. Frank, have you? I'm I'm nervous to ask you this question because this is from the same source that compared a cow to a thousand liters of gasoline out of a car, which you told me is BS. So this is from the same presentation. So I don't know how you're going to feel about it, but if it's true, it was fascinating. They were demonstrating how cattle that had been fed. It's and this had been monitored as part of a uh, you know controlled variable scientific study that the cattle that had been fed a, a certain 
type of red seaweed. Uh, they found that they had drastically dropped their methane emissions, and they were talking about the bigger picture. Now, I don't know about the sustainability of harvesting the seaweed or some of the implications mm-hmm. ecologically or otherwise, but um, what are you noticing on the on the, the cattle feed front, and can you see that being a trend that would catch? So the vast majority of these feed additive studies to reduce what's called enteric emissions are done here uh, at UC Davis in my department. Um, and we have found... Um, several feed additives. We have studied a total of 100 feed additives. Of the 195 didn't work, but the five that did work showed reductions of anywhere between 10 to 50% of enteric methane. And that is a sizable chunk. That is a sizable chunk of methane reduction. So you feed a few grams of methane per ton of feed, a few grams of feed additive per ton of feed, and uh, it is remarkable how the methane generation in the rumen, which is this large, large stomach they have, uh, is significantly inhibited. Uh, so there is not just a future. I'm, I'm, for sh- I'm absolutely certain that within the next few years, we'll find that in the feed store. And I'm hopeful that it's not the farmers who are expected to pay the bill. But uh, I'm seeing that many companies, food companies like Nestle and Starbucks and others, are partnering with farmers saying, we will buy those feed additives for you so that you can feed them to cattle uh, to reduce the carbon footprint of what will become the product that that we will sell. So this is already happening. And I'm very, very uh, optimistic and positive about that. On the manure side, we also see technologies that strongly reduce methane. For example, covered lagoons on dairies that capture all the biogas that normally would go into the air. They capture that biogas, 50% of which is methane, and convert it into fuels that are then fueling uh, vehicle fleets, semi-trucks. We have seen a 25% reduction a 25% reduction of methane in the state of California over the last three years through mitigation techniques and technologies from livestock. I'm very optimistic about it, very positive about it, and I congratulate our farmers to be so aggressive about it. Frank, do you think that human beings will be eating beef or other animal protein in 100 years? Absolutely. Otherwise, I wouldn't do my job. Hmm. But... The livestock sector will have a significant opportunity to further reduce its emissions. And every time they do reduce the emissions, we are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, just like a forester does when planting trees. These trees suck carbon out of the air. Methane reductions do the same thing. When we reduce methane, we reduce carbon emissions and we reduce warming. And that is the reason why farmers and foresters are the only two solution providers Uh, among the land uh, owners and land users out there. Uh, Dr. Frank Mitloner, this is uh, amazing. By the way, I wanted to let you know, I've just got an email as we're talking. I got an email from the Canadian Cattlemen's Association, which is awesome, um, contributing to this conversation. They said they're thrilled to see you here on the show. So we appreciate you taking time out of your day. Uh, Professor and air quality extension specialist in the Department of Animal Science at the University of California, UC Davis, Department of Animal Science. Thank you for this, doctor. We appreciate it. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me and good luck to you. You got it. Thanks, Frank. That's great. Uh, I want to read this. 
Um, this is from Amy Peck, uh, uh, stakeholder engagement manager with uh, Canadian Beef uh, Program through the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. This is awesome. I love that Amy's watching the show. I haven't even read the email. I'm just going to read it live with you here. Um, she says, I tuned into your show this morning. Tune in right now. Amy, good morning. If you're still watching, I imagine you are. Uh, she says to hear Dr. Mitloner talk about cows and methane and climate change. But I was really interested in hearing from your first guest, uh, Dr. Simonis, about food waste. And says, and I wanted to bring up a story idea that combines the thoughts of two of your guests today. Um, says, it's really amazing, says Amy, the role that livestock plays in combating food waste that most people have no idea about. Um, Amy says, I heard you mention from the chat today, you read that comment about 40% of grains going to feeding livestock. And you'll remember when I read it, I said, I, I can't fact check that on the fly. Um, Amy says, that is not, in fact, true. In Canada, says only 9% of cropland is dedicated to feeding animals. 86% of what cattle eat is inedible to humans. However, any crops that are damaged by weather are able to be fed to cattle and they're upcycled into beef for human nutrition. So depending on what's happening with the weather, the amount of crop that goes to cattle can be quite variable. Makes sense. She says, and these crops are not being wasted. Uh, what would otherwise end up in landfills is instead being transformed to steak via a steer. Cattle are not competing with people for food. They are creating food from waste. Amy goes on to say that on the topic of food waste from grocery stores is a really cool program called the loop that connects farmers with local grocery stores. The farmers take their shrink. That is items that are close to or past their expiry date and produce that won't sell um, says that, you know, I could put you in touch with local. I mean, this is how this this is how this works. Right. So we're going to do this. Amy, if you're like, I agree. Let's do this. Let's move forward. We won't do it live on the air. Obviously, she's going to put us in touch with local farmers that take advantage of this. She says we could show you and give you examples or put you in touch with Alberta beef ranchers doing incredible things uh, when it comes to on farm initiatives that turn food waste into prime rib. She had me at prime rib with some examples, even video examples of things like French fries or carrots that from Amy Peck uh, with uh, Canadian beef a program of the Canadian Cattlemen's Association love it I love it when stuff like that happens so we'll keep the conversation going all of this is from a listener you remember a viewer that wrote in and said you got to talk to Dr. Mitloner out of UC Davis so that's how we got that idea we really appreciate it. a lot of you write in and say where do you get your ideas for content a big part of it is you right this is your show uh, you show up every morning to join us in community to learn together so we want to hear from you talk at ryanjesperson.com is the best way to reach us the chat not the best way to reach us because because you're so engaged this is a good problem that we have um what did we did we crunch the numbers the other day i think we we determined that through the course of a two and a half hour show we average a comment every six seconds um yeah we were looking we were just we we're curious we we're looking at the crunch the numbers a couple things we're, yeah six to ten seconds six to ten seconds yeah. depending on the ebb and the flow of the show depending on the interview so it gives you a sense of you know it's tough to, to keep an eye on it um it, did all this talk make you want to sort of sink your teeth into a burger like maybe today is the day you know exactly where i'm going with this maybe today is the day that may, maybe you head over to one of those six dairy queens in northwest edmonton or sherwood park or maybe you're feeling dairy like like my favorite form of dairy, which would be the blizzard. Um, <laughs> it fits into the food groups in a way. It fits. You can get your cannibal Candy's a food group. You can get your protein. <laughs> you know, uh, the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park have been partners of ours since day one, and they are loving it. They've asked me to tell you how much they appreciate 
you letting them know that you're there because of Real Talk. So whether you're using one of the delivery apps or whether you're hitting their drive through right now, we encourage you to show your support. Let them know you're a Real Talker at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Hey, while you're out there, swing on by Sherwood Dodge, the best selection of Ram trucks and the Jeep lineup in all of Alberta. Same goes with St. Albert Dodge. They've got a great relationship as well. Maybe one dealership has the perfect Jeep you're looking for. Maybe it's one of those gladiators. I just stare at photos of those things or that new Grand Wagoneer that's coming out, redefining the luxury SUV market. You will not find a better selection of the 2021 Jeep lineup. It's it's an unbelievable lineup this year than you will at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge. I would imagine our uh, panel's ready to rock and roll here. Are we get, still working on that? Close. Yeah, just get Why don't you give me a right heads now. up because I have a ton of emails to get to. So you let me know. So let's go through there's this more, new, uh, yeah, there's this, there's a new pack that's launching. This is a political action committee. They're not hiding the fact that they're a pack and they're launching today. They've told us they want to launch on real talk. And so we're going to talk to the team behind look forward Calgary in just a moment. Calgary is a city that North America and, and I, I think I can say the world is paying attention to Calgary has been, as you know, the corporate headquarters for one of the biggest energy producing jurisdictions on planet Earth for many years. Calgary has seen incredible entrepreneurial uh, spirit emanate from uh, from its downtown core and from the city for many years. Calgary has been a huge employer for many years. Its population growth has been remarkable. But Calgary is is hidden. Uh, it's hit a bump in the road, so to speak. Office tower vacancies are around 30 percent right now, which is the highest that they've ever been. And people are starting to wonder, what does Calgary's reinvention look like? We know it's possible. We know that this city can continue to be a city of, of proud corporate headquarters, a proud employer, a city that people are proud to raise their families, a city that people target as a destination to work and live. But what has to happen for Calgary to continue to see a healthy economy and healthy social structure for years to come? If we are ready to roll, why don't we get right into this right now? The the pack is called Look Forward Calgary, and it's, it's a real pleasure to welcome um, three of the board of, of, of governors to the board of directors here to our program i don't know how i'm going to handle these intros because their their cvs their bios uh, number one make me feel completely insufficient and number two i mean we're talking about people that are that are principals and partners and ceos in multiple agencies all at once so i'm going to try to do it justice i mean sitting right next to me here on our graphic layout here is is irfan raji who's the founder and ceo of mob squad uh, he's principal with totem capital corporation he's board chair with the Glenbow Museum, board member at the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. I mean, he serves as chair of the Heart and Stroke Foundation's Impact Fund Advisory Committee. Irfan, I'm just, I I got to cut the bio short or we're going to run out of time, but let me extend a very warm welcome to Real, thanks for being here with us this morning on Real Talk. Thanks, Ryan. We really appreciate you uh, making time for us and engaging in this discussion. You bet. I'm looking forward to what it holds. Uh, next to you, uh, easily sporting the biggest smile of the panel, at least early, is Darby Lee Young. Thrilled to have Darby on the show. Darby is one of Canada's top 40 under 40 for 2018, the founder and the principal accessibility strategist at Level Playing Field, a top 25 woman of influence in 2021, and the only person that I know that has a John Flute Fluvog shoe named after her. Darby, I have like six pairs of Fluvogs. Uh, with with apologies to our other guests, you might be the early favorite. Welcome to Real Talk and thanks for being here. 
Thanks, Ryan. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Shelly, I'm, I'm nervous I'm going to mispronounce your surname. Is it? Do you say Cupers? Kuipers. Kuipers. All right, Shelly. Well, welcome to the show. Um, the, the founder and, and CEO, do you say Iovia? Iovia is uh, a, a new enterprise. You create new enterprise business models, which is really what we're going to get into here uh, for growth, focused on consumer engagement. Um, you work with a global team of consultants. You've also founded Harris uh, Kuiper's a, a direct to consumer lifestyle brand. You're focused on ethically sourced, sustainable clothing. Plus, you co-founded The 51, which is a feminist investment collective uh, with the goal of uniting Canada's untapped female wealth welcome to the show officially thank you shelly why don't we start with you uh the introduction is fresh why are you part of this look forward calgary initiative that's that's officially launching this week why was it important to you it obviously seems like you got a lot on your plate but you found time to fit this in yeah uh earthman was very convincing um so that's that's why i'm here um and, you know, we're allies in uh, the innovation economy here in Alberta and, and in Calgary specifically. So, you know, I got involved. Um, I really wanted to represent women in the innovation economy here in Calgary. Um, you know, there's so much work that's being done by, you know, the community that I'm in. Um, and I believe we can be a real force for for change, sustain, sustainable change uh, for the city. And so that's why I signed up. Darby, how about yourself? Why was this so important for you, for, for you to make sure that you were available to serve in a leadership role? Yeah, sort of the same as Shelley. It was a, a big part of making sure that persons with disabilities um, also felt that they were really included um, in the upcoming election and making sure that, you know, our community or my community, I should say, um, Feels, feels included in that people understand that we want to be um, as involved as we possibly can and want to make sure that um, persons with disabilities and what we need is also being heard. So I'm, I'm excited to help this conversation so that we can make sure that we are working towards an inclusive Calgary. I'm really looking forward to digging into some of the specifics of what that looks like, uh, Darby, and we'll certainly get into that. I want I want to get to Irfan. You know, a lot of uh, the talk about looking forward in Calgary and what Calgary's future looks like is obviously going to focus on the economy. And that's a big part of what I know your personal and professional focus, uh, where that lies as well. Where does this conversation need to begin? Yeah, well, you know, Ryan, great question. A couple things uh, to highlight. The first is you you opened the, the discussion talking about the fact that Calgary's hit a bump in the road. Uh, I I fear I'm fearful that it's actually worse than a bump in the road. I think that if you looked at what's happened to Calgary in the last five or six years, uh, it's bigger than what other cities have faced. I mean, I mean, two oil price crashes and a pandemic, um, you know, thirty percent office vacancies, the unemployment rate. It's it's pretty tough. Uh, but it's not just about the economy. You know, we can't just bring, you know, GDP up. We have to bring all of us forward. So, you know, look forward is about really two things. One, objectives around building a resilient city that's inclusive, that's thriving. Like, that's the first thing. Like, we need a city that looks different than what we've seen in the past. And the second thing isn't just about what we're trying to do, but how we're going to do it. And so one of the things that I've noticed uh, in the last few years is that our politics uh, municipally 
have become much more angry and there's much more vitriol. And we just can't scream and yell at each other and expect that that's going to be productive. You know, the fact that there is a pandemic is not not Nancy's fault. The fact that there's low oil price and there's an oil price shock is not Jason Kenney's fault. But we get up and we scream at our politicians and think that that's going to be productive. And for us at Look Forward, it's about being diverse, about being inclusive, about bringing the city's voice, uh, voices from across the city together so that we can build a resilient, thriving, uh, and inclusive Calgary. And we think that this upcoming municipal election sets the stage perfectly for those types of productive, collaborative discussions. So, Shelley, people are yeah, people are going to want to know right out of the gates. I mean, you identify this as a PAC, as a political action committee. There's no hiding that. There's no secret. It's quite obvious. People can check out lookforwardcalgary.org. So is the group uh, endorsing a mayoral candidate? Is, is the group going to simply seek to to put questions in front of people so that doorstep conversations are meaningful? I mean, what's the mandate? Yeah, uh, and I would... I uh, encourage your fan to step into this too, because I'm, I'm new to the group. And, uh, but I mean, the mandate of the group is to seek out who's, who's putting their hat into the ring um, and who is saying that they want to be a leader. And then how can we, um, you know, kind of rally around these potential candidates um, and, you know, yeah, there's there's a, there's a movement that can be put behind these candidates. So how can we, you know, identify the candidates that meet the things um, that Irfan just spoke about, which is like, you know, thriving, resilient and inclusive leadership. Uh, we see that that's the path forward. And so, um, you know, how do we source, identify uh, and support and champion the candidates that, that kind of meet that criteria and, and meet that vision? I don't correct me if I'm wrong. I'm a born and raised Calgary kid. I'd be mortified if I get this wrong. But Calgary's never had a woman has never served as mayor in the city of Calgary. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just taking a look right now. Uh, the great work by the team at the sprawl um, at sprawlcalgary.com, and they're doing a great job of staying on top of the candidates and who's running for mayor. Um, so far, I see that Grace Yan is running. Um, obviously, Jody Gondek, the uh, current uh, city councilor, has has thrown her hat into the ring, which which would be interesting. Um, let Let me ask uh, the women that are joining us this morning first. Uh, you know, no offense to you, Air Fan, we'll get to you. Um, but Darby, what what does it mean to you? Um, first of all, to see women in the race, I, I would say Councillor Gondek would be a, a strong candidate. But but what would it do to the city, first of all, to have a woman leading council? You know, Ryan, I, th- I think that would be fantastic um, as much as, you know, somewhat of the different industries. You know, we, we talk about being an old boys club aspect, having women step up and try and lead that also makes us and opens the door to being more inclusive and sort of makes it gives us a different light um, that women can shine. Not to say that anybody uh, that is a qualified candidate can definitely run for mayor. Um, but if we can get more women to step up, not only in the mayor's chair, but uh, as councillors as well, um, then it can help make it so that it's an even well, as I say, level playing field, um, not only for the accessibility side, but but for women in general. Yeah, Shelly, in, in your work, in your advocacy and in, in, in all, all the stuff that you've done um, to uh, make sure that, that women are, are becoming involved in the entrepreneurial process, that you're removing barriers, et cetera, um, is there a common uh, is there either a common rally craw- uh, call that's effective 
Um, in, 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 I can't wait to find out why you're, you have the facial expression you do because I feel like I'm going to frame the question wrong. I'd rather just let you take over, take the microphone here. Or is there a common hurdle that stands in the way of women? Do you hear the same thing again and again with women saying, well, this is why I'm not either launching my own business or, 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 or running for politics? Is there a common theme? Yeah, and I think my Zoom is not uh, cooperating um, with me. It looks like I've I've been frozen. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you okay. Okay, okay, no problem. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that there is a common theme, um, you know. I jinxed it. I jinxed it when I said her, yeah, her Zoom was okay. Um, I'll tell you what, why don't yeah. we, do we have all three guests frozen at the same time, Sam? Okay, it don't worry. Like the Zoom window just froze for us. I'm working on Zoom, it. Okay, <laughs> that's no problem. This is uh, the type of thing where, you know, we just roll with it on the fly. Uh, yeah, Shane says, oh, wow. Uh, the Watcher says, oh, boy. Wigwith says, not again. Uh, okay, let me get to the let me get to the live chat here, and Sam's going to get it uh, figured out. Uh, Mark uh, chiming in. Are we talking about Red Deer here? This is interesting. Uh, Robin chiming in as well about Alberta elections. Uh, Fatima says, this is exciting. You know, representation that more resembles the demographics of the province and initiatives like these are so important uh, to move the conversation forward and to better inform policy less uh is watching in less says thank you darby it's great to see darby on the panel says people with disabilities have been excluded from this process for far too long uh some random guy says the oil crash definitely is not premier jason kenny's fault but his ineffective response to it definitely is um i think that we could have a a long conversation about that for sure um others are, are are you know asking fair questions like you know you know i mean how do you um well i don't know if i want to read that never mind um judy says i don't know if i just hope that alberta can recover from some of the destruction and and the pillaging that we've seen from the premier's office interesting comment there um i wonder if are we good to go again let's bring our panel back in here uh michelle says did they just scrap their panel because of the freeze michelle are you serious is that a serious question we got a we've got a team working behind the scenes to make sure we get these folks back um i should have known better shelly than to basically say all was well and and i basically jinxed our zoom call here by saying everything was great uh it froze shortly after but we've got the three of you back now you were in the middle of developing a thought yeah i think um there are barriers uh facing women today we know that um you know in the work that um, i do at the 51 and i believe the work that's very much aligned with what we're doing here today the conversation that we're having is 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 trying to remove those barriers um, and extend the invitation to anybody who wants to to put their hat in the race including women um i think you know uh there's a tremendous opportunity for women to be to be leaders, especially in this time. Um, when we go back to what Look Forward stands for, I think that that type of leadership is inherent in women. Um, I think a woman will make a fantastic uh, um, mayor for Calgary, and um, I'm definitely one that's going to be going to be championing that cause, just like Darby. So when it comes to the difficult conversations that that need to be had, uh, Irfan, there's there's reason for a lot of optimism here. I know um, we've had you know and and are, and also planning our, our continuing conversations with people that are going to talk about reinventing skill sets and reinventing careers and words like pivot and evolve and 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 dealing with disruption and all these buzzwords. But when it gets to the personal level, people go, "What does this mean for me?" 
there are probably going to be uh, instances where people are feeling stretched. Uh, I, I hate to use the cliche, but people will have to step outside their comfort zone. And then collectively, the city is going to have to as well. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Ryan. I mean, we if we want to get a different outcome and we want to be in a different spot, we're going to have to approach things differently and we're going to have to take uh, some risk and, and do things that, you know, we haven't done historically. And that's part of what Look Forward's trying to do, right? Like, but this isn't an organization that's about throwing stones and blaming somebody else. It's actually an organization about bringing citizens together to collectively say, what are the solutions to these challenges that we all know exist? We all know that unemployment is a challenge. We all know that climate security is a challenge. We all know that public transportation needs to be invested in. We all know that we want access to sports and to culture, but how are we going to get these things done within the base of, of, of revenue that we have? What are the policies that actually can build the city that we want that's inclusive and that's resilient and that's thriving? And, you know, for me, thinking about what we hope to achieve through this, it's about having a big tent. It's about bringing as many Calgarians in together. You know, our membership is is suggested $21 fee. It's not like a typical pack where you don't know who, uh, you don't know where uh, maybe the big influence is coming from. Anybody can join us for, for free. Uh, and that's because we want Calgarians to come together to have productive conversations to figure out policy that gets us where we want to go to that's based on evidence rooted in fact and it's outcomes oriented. And so it's not politically oriented. So what the objectives that we're trying to get to and, and as I think through what we hope for in terms of outcomes, I hope that we engage a lot of Calgarians. I hope that we're able to develop policy platforms that we can all look to and say, that's the city that I want. And that I hope that we are able to then endorse candidates that both believe in that platform, but also are willing to collaborate and work together. So it's not about vitriol at city council. It's about being productive in our conversations to achieve the objectives that Calgarians want. And yes, some of that will be we're going to have to do things differently. And part of doing things differently is our approach, which is it's not a political approach. It's an approach based on having productive conversations, which unfortunately I don't see a lot of in politics today. Are, are, are the three of you, uh, I mean, I guess I have to ask the question individually. Um, when we talk about PACs, I think that most engaged citizens are going to be paying keen attention and, and, and we're going to make sure that they do uh, closer attention to the influence that money can have in politics. This municipal election uh, rules have been changed. Uh, there's there's provincial influence here. There's going to be big money um, and there will be preferred candidates or in some cases you may describe them as appointed candidates. Um, I think at least in Alberta's two more populated cities. Um, I'm trying to I'm trying to determine based on the looks on your faces if, if, who might have the strongest opinion here. Darby, I just can't ignore your smile. I just want to keep I want to keep talking you know, because you just appear to be so positive. But this is not a positive uh, scenario in my mind. Can I now you're trying to be all serious. Oh, my gosh. I adore this. Um, are you like are you how are you feeling about I'm going to ask all three of you this question. Are you concerned about money? I mean, here you guys are. You guys are a pack. But I mean, are you concerned about money in politics or in outside influences? Darby, I'll ask you first. Yeah, I, I think the when it comes to this, it's it's a difficult conversation to have for sure. There's always going to be questions around the money and the, the financial aspects, especially PACs and, and who donates and who, who doesn't and so on. But, you know, there's there's ways of answering that. And there's also, you know, scenarios of, you know, we, we want to support those that 
will make a difference for the city. And if somebody wants to donate, like Irfan talked about earlier on the fact that we only have a, you know, a minimum of 21, or it's actually free, um, or you can pay $21. You know, there is that avenue that we're allowing everyone, including, you know, persons with disabilities, to, to have a chance to have their say. So the donor aspect and the funding and who's gonna back who, it's really hard to say at this time what that's actually gonna look like. Shelly, is that something that's been on your radar? Yeah, and you know, I, I actually think it's quite hopeful. Um, I like the idea that, um, you know, the invitation to participate is to anybody, like Darby said, for free, $21. Um, and then I think it's the role of this group then to be representative, to be um, representative of those that are behind that movement. So I believe it's about building community. It's about building a movement um, and a vision that's very hopeful for the city. So I think it's collaborative and it's inclusive. So I, I, I like it. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not so much talking about this. I think I'm more talking about, you know, the fact that legislation was changed at a provincial level to, to, to change the landscape of what can happen with regards to municipal elections, who can donate, how much they can donate, where the money can come from, the role that third party advertisers can play. We've heard city councilors in several uh, communities in Alberta. I mean, I think of Andrew Knack, one of the city councilors here in Edmonton, that's been very outspoken about it. Um, Irfan, it's 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 the type of thing where I think that the, the average voter may not realize the extent to which this is about to occur. Um, is this something that concerns you? Yeah, Ryan, to, to, to answer your question directly and bluntly, I'm very concerned. Um, I, we have to operate within the system and the rules that exist, but I don't want big money to come into our politics. I think the beauty of the Canadian system versus like an American system is that you can't have, you know, million dollar donations have influence. Uh, and so I think things that can move us back towards having, you know, smaller contributions mattering, I think is really, really important. Having said that, um, you know, I'd say, three really important things. Uh, the first is part of what Look Forward is trying to do is move away from it being about big money to being about more and big voices. And so critically, we're trying to bring people together to have conversation. Uh, and we don't need to have a lot of money to do that. We need to have a lot of will and desire to build the city that we're looking to build together. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing I'd say is that part of how this started actually was our uh, my co-chair in the Board of Governors, a woman named Patricia Phillips, and in the last municipal election, Patricia Phillips was the fundraising chair for Bill Smith, uh, who ran against Nahid Nenshi, and I was one of Nahid's uh, fundraisers. I raised a lot of money for that campaign. And Patricia and I, as friends who care about uh, the city of Calgary, said, let's stop making this about fundraising. Let's stop making this about money. Let's start making this about productive conversation. So why don't the two of us get together to actually demonstrate to the city and to those others, others that might be looking in the province, that we're about actually productive solutions, not just raising money uh, against each other. And so that, I think, is a really important thing and a touchstone for us as an organization in terms of how we really even thought about starting. The third thing I'd say is, while I am worried about uh, fundraising and money, the biggest thing I'm worried about is the vitriol in politics and the trolling against uh, women that are trying to run, against people of color, against other minorities. If you were to look at what happens in social media in these campaigns, it's very discouraging. And we need to take that out. As citizens, we have to say it's not acceptable. This is about a screaming match or about offending each other. We need to talk about productive policy. 
And so, you know, UBC just released a study where if you looked at Twitter and campaigns, 7% of tweets are positive on campaigning and 93% are neutral and mostly negative. That's got to stop. We got to stop yelling at each other and throwing stones. We got to start talking about how we're going to solve our challenges together. That's what worries me the most. Yeah, and I want to I want to believe we had a we had a, a a fantastic conversation yesterday on the show, and it was a uh, I mean uh, I th- I think all of us were pushed to to challenge ourselves in conversation. Irshad Manji uh, joined us, the author of Don't Label Me, uh, ahead of her lecture, uh, which is tonight actually um, online. People can find the link on my on my Twitter, and it's free about moral courage in trying times and challenging times, and 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 meeting in the middle and having conversations with people we disagree with, and I don't want to lose faith or optimism that 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 type of exercise is possible because it's the type of exercise that needs to happen. Um, You know, I mean, we even think, you know, I got an email from a listener. I don't have it in front of me, but a few days ago, it really resonated with me. And they said, they said, you know, we'd like to see more conversation about how, you know, you can, how friends of the energy industry can be friends of the environment. You know, there's a lot of stories that are flying under the radar where you get, you know, kind of painted into corners or you get assigned to camps, you know, where you're either for, you know, you're either for oil and gas or you're for the environment. And I think that that's just such a foolish choice. It's a, I mean, look at you, your friend. You're like, yeah, obviously, it's a, it's a ridiculous choice. It's, it's disingenuous. And we need to be able to, and I think, especially in a city like Calgary, where there's been such innovation. I mean, if you look at if you look at the innovation on display uh, and a lot of it that emanates out of the province of Alberta, it's remarkable. We know that there are smart and talented and fearless people here. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when you talk about finding kind of a common goal, which we, which may be looking forward to Calgary, which is what this pack is all about. It's possible, but we are going to have to, I think, uh, indicate on mass that we do not accept the tone of dialogue that we see now in public and from our elected officials. Yeah, I mean, I think, Ryan, we have to just accept the facts as they are and then work towards solving them. Yelling at each other isn't going to get us anywhere. It hasn't got us anywhere so far. And so, you know, unless we do something differently, we're not going to get a different outcome. And, you know, I, there are some negative facts. Like, it's probably true that the fire department is racist. I mean, there's been a ton of reporting on that. We've heard that the police department is misogynistic. Are we comfortable with these things? Are we comfortable that the rest of Canada and the world looks to us and sees these things about our city? I am not comfortable. I'm not going to get up and scream and yell about it. I'm going to think about how do we productively solve these challenges? Because I don't think that the chief of police or the chief of the fire department wants that for their organization. I don't believe they're bad people. I just think we have to work with them to figure out how we get from where we are to where we want to be. I I think it's a false choice to say that it's either oil or climate security. You know, how climate secure is it to replace Alberta oil with Middle Eastern oil? I I don't see the logic in that. I mean, I see wars that are created. Tell me the environmental and carbon footprint of a war. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? So we have to just look at things and have rational, calm discussion. Um, But, you know, throwing rocks and saying, you know, the pandemic is so-and-so's fault or oil crisis. I mean, yes, okay, well, we can say I'm not happy. But instead of saying I'm unhappy, I'm going to vote somebody out. How about let's talk about well, what could we do instead? Let's have a productive comment, which is instead of thinking about this policy, we'll think about that policy, not just, you know, Jason Kenny got it wrong. Well, that's not helpful. Darby, you I mean, your your involvement in in advocacy is is really remarkable. As mentioned, you've served on the city of Calgary's advisory committee on accessibility. 
Um, you, you, you've been a celebrated para-alpine skier, I should mention. You represented the city of Calgary at the International Summit on Accessibility. And for three years, up until last year, you served on the Premier's Council on the Status of Persons with Disabilities. If you were writing policy or if you were able to manifest a change in Calgary to make it more inclusive and accessible uh, to people, including persons with disabilities, where would you start? What's one of your key priorities? What do you want people to hear, to know about and to start talking about after seeing you here on Real Talk today? Well, I, I think, Ryan, the, the biggest thing for me is I want people to understand that persons with disabilities want to feel like an accepted member of society um, because a lot of the times persons with disabilities are considered second-class citizens. We're not part of the workforce. Um, you know, there's, there's issues around that and people wanting to hire persons with disabilities. So ultimately we're, we're wanting to try and open the door and have people look at persons with disabilities a little different. I, I like it better when I go down to the States. I'm not going to lie. I get treated differently than even going to a shopping mall here. I get stared at. Really? Uh, oh yeah. So people just like, it's just the way we're raised. And so I would love to continue to have the conversation about explaining how persons with disabilities can be an equal member of society and can make a difference. If we look back to see of everything that I've done, I haven't done that necessarily all myself. I've had quite the support behind me, but it's also showing per like people that it can happen just because I walk funny doesn't mean that I can't hold a job or be part of city council or be in the mayor's office or, or any of that. We've got to realize that every individual needs to be treated as an individual, whether it's disability or color or anything, and that have equal opportunities. So having look forward, open it, and make it so that any member can be a part of it is huge because then that allows people like myself to continue this conversation and have it matter when it, when we need it most at City Hall where we've got leadership and City Hall needs to take the lead on this and supporting every member of society. Darby, I, it's such a good point you make. I, I want to circle back and, and this is not the entire point of what you just said. I'll recognize that. But I'm re it's, it's so interesting for me to hear you say that you get treated better in the United States as a person with a disability in Canada. And then you say it's the way that we're raised as Canadians. Typically, as Canadians, we walk with a bit of a, of a swagger, don't we? We, we, like, we sew our flag on our backpacks so people don't think we're Americans. That's how proud we are of being Canadian. That's how much we elevate ourselves uh, as Canadians. Why do you think that? Is? I mean, this is your lived experience. Why, why, how do you think Americans are raised differently in a way that's more inclusive of an attitude? Well, I think the biggest thing is, is the Americans have the ADA, which is the Americans Disabilities Act. So persons with disabilities have to have equal rights uh, within the U.S. We're up here in Canada. We don't have anything like that. We've got the Accessible Canada's Act that is starting to roll out that started in uh, June 2019. But it's years away from making a difference. Yes, Ontario's had some legislation and there's some other legislations throughout the country, but it's because that we don't really have any serious legislation across the board for the country in general, that people like me just aren't considered 
proper like members of society and they don't see that we're equal like we have the equal rights that's the biggest thing so if if city hall can start to actually see us as vital members of society then we're better to make it an inclusive calgary like we've like we're striving for now i want to ask the three of you this uh in closing and shelly we'll start with you Uh, Obviously, you come, you bring your own personal perspective, your own personal experience to this as a member of these this board of governors, and and obviously within your social circle, your professional circle. I know that people will be compelled to check out this organization, LookForwardCalgary.org. Um, what's what's one thing that you would say that that, and, and you can be as specific or general as you like. Obviously, what's one thing that you would hope to contribute to this that you would say at the end of the exercise? Let's say you know the the, the day after the municipal election this October, you can look back and say it, my involvement in this pack was a success because we effectively addressed this yeah i love that question i would say um that uh women's participation in uh, municipal politics uh in calgary was increased substantially we had a material impact on that um you know, we're, we're so far away from uh, gender equality. Um, and we were doing some research the other day at 51 and it's like, it's like 110 years away. So um, we have so much work to do. Um, and I think if this organization can be part of, and if I can contribute um, that gender perspective around, you know, women fully participating in politics, women fully participating in the economy. There's just so much to be gained by doing that. And so that would be that would be my goal from this this exercise. Darby, how about you? I mean, I, I think you've 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 certainly given us a pretty clear idea of what one of your your top priorities is going to be. But looking back, how will you deem this to be a success? I, I think for it, you know, deem it a success would be the fact that we've had these conversations. Mm and that we've continued to strive to make our buildings more accessible and that we're welcoming people with different disabilities in different aspects. That'll be the, the, the topic for me and making sure that all the members are talking about us too. Even if it's slightly, at least like Joe Biden mentioned persons with disabilities. So if we can get our city uh, to talk about it too, that's that's what'll be a major impact for me. All right, your fan, we're gonna give Last word to you, my man. How will this be deemed a success in your eyes? Well, thank you, Ryan, uh, for the question. And again, for having us on. We really appreciate it to launch. Uh, look forward here today. And to me, you know, success is first that we build on the work that we've already done today, which is a lot of research, a lot of engagement with Calgarians, that we build the membership, that we build a platform that we can point to that's based on evidence and, and actually is rooted in outcomes. Um, and, you know, that we have a council, you know, to, to Darby's point, to Shelley's point, that, that represents Calgary, that's truly diverse, uh, and that they are able to act on that platform, which will build an inclusive, resilient, um, and, you know, also thriving Calgary for the future, and that collaborates. Like, I'd love to see a council where the stuff that comes into the media isn't, isn't, uh, isn't as vitriolic and it's more productive. And so if we have a diverse group, it's collaborative, it acts on a platform to build an inclusive, resilient uh, and thriving Calgary, I'd be very, very excited. Um, 
Shelly and Darby and Irfan, I just want to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I, I know, I mean, you don't have to live in Calgary to be, uh, first of all, interested, and second of all, uh, to be optimistic about the future of that city. It's been a, a huge city with regards to economic activity, quality of life um, in Western Canada and across the country. And, and, I, and I share your desire to see it emerge stronger out of what are very real challenges right now. Congratulations on launching Look Forward Calgary. This this week and thanks for making this your first interview we appreciate it thank you all right you can check out yeah you bet we'll talk to you again soon look forward calgary.org um really appreciate those perspectives and thanks to everybody that's chiming in here as well you don't have to live in calgary to care about this it's a uh it's a it's a, it's an interesting study uh, Calgary's a city that has that has boomed and bust busted. Uh, I mean, if you look at sort of Canadian cities, when 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 oil is riding high, when the economy's healthy, Calgary is uh, happening place. It's a happening place. Like where when when oil is booming, Calgary was the place to move in Canada. We Absolutely. Always, we always used to say, uh, and maybe they still do say it, that you could always tell, um, you could always gauge the health of Calgary's economy by the tarp auction for the Rangeland Derby uh, when the tarps would go up. So the, the wagon covers for the chuck wagons in the Rangeland Derby. And that was always a gauge of how healthy Calgary's economy was. So you'd see, you know, Kelly Sutherland or Buddy Bensmiller or Jason Glass or I mean, I can talk chuck wagons all day long. I was about to say, it took me a moment to, to, to connect those dots in my head. Yeah, but, no, I'm a big, uh, I'm a big, there. I'm a big chuck wagon guy. I love the rodeo. I know not all of you will like that, but um, I was I was born and raised enjoying it. Um, and uh, and boy, oh boy, I've just probably opened another can of worms. We can talk about you know the, the humane nature or not of the rodeo some other time. Um, and I'm wide open to the conversation. But but in in the tarp auctions, you'd see people. I mean, when oil was at 120 bucks a barrel, companies would pay a hundred thousand dollars, a hundred and twenty thousand dollars to have the king Kelly Sutherland drive the wagon with their tarp on it. Right. And then when when oil's down and when the economy's suffering, you'll see tarps go unclaimed or tarps will go for like five grand or ten grand. Um, and it's always been an interesting gauge of how the city's doing. Uh, wanted to point out right now that the team at Park Power, they're powering our hashtag Real Talk RJ. That's where we're keeping an eye on what you have to say, comments you're making about today's show. The really neat thing about watching our hashtag is we're able to see in real time what's catching your attention in interviews we're doing live as well as on our past shows many of you are watching our archive on youtube or working your way through our podcasts and you're letting us know about how you feel about those shows by making that hashtag our connection well park power is proud to power that as well as thousands and thousands of homes across this province they've been in business for coming up on 10 years now 10 percent of their profits are plugged back into the community so you got to pay somebody for natural gas electricity and internet why not make it park power plus if you go to parkpower.ca use the promo code 2021-realtalk they're going to give you 70 bucks off your first bill i love getting a few more emails today i even saw a note in the chat as well one of you said just bow my clean air club furnace filters just arrived and of course many more of you have taken advantage of that opportunity to check out cleanairclub.ca let them know what size furnace filter you need and then of course just wait you don't wait long these furnace filters show up on your door sometimes same day you've been telling us 
sometimes the very next day, and then they keep you on schedule so you save money and you breathe easy. Make sure you send us a photo when your Clean Air Club filters arrive. Also wanted to give a shout out today to the team at Kubi Energy. We're so proud to be partnering with them on Positive Reflections. The first show of every week, we read your emails, your stories that have brought a smile to your face. We show the videos and the photos that made you laugh. We love it. You can send them in to us, talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you tag Kubi, K-U-B-Y, or Positive Reflections in the subject line. Kubi's in business across British Columbia and Alberta doing solar installations, residential, and big commercial projects. No project too small or too big for them, and they love to work with you to determine if it's a good fit. They even handle the paperwork. You can find them online at kubienergy.ca or by following the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Darby's already tweeting back at me. She says, thanks for having me on the show, Ryan Jesperson. There is something about Darby that is just like... Uh, she lights up a her, room. Her energy just draws you in. I'm not oh, surprised yeah. that John Fluvog, the great Canadian shoemaker, has 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 created the Darby. She has her own shoe by John Fluvog. Which, like, by the way, what a great like. I remember when that story came out, and I was just I was so happy reading that. You know, I mean, John Fluvog is kind of held up as like the haute couture of Canadian oh, yeah. footwear. Oh I mean, yeah. If you have Fluvog shoes, you've got it made. Um, and and you know, showing that. Um, making something specifically for a person with disabilities and someone that is a vocal disability advocate like that speaks volumes to yeah, what they do thought it was great uh, we promised uh, you real talkers that we would get into some of your emails yesterday was a big day uh, for us uh, Daniel says that was a great panel Darby sure does light up a room um, this is uh, this is um, an email that, that really jumped out at me because it's from a former guest that we've had on the show. You remember Dr. Cynthia Padue that was on the show? Um, I remember it most specifically because it was one of my egg on the face moments when I introduced her as Dr. Cynthia Putty. And then she let me know that I had a typo. It was my fat fingers on the keyboard. She says it's Padue. And I said, I will never forget your last name again. She reached out to me yesterday. Uh, she's a, a professor at Grant McEwen University and does a lot of great work there. Uh, the director of the Community Engaged Scholarship uh, and an, an assistant professor there. Um, the good doctor says, Ryan, as, as you can probably imagine, this was based on my comments yesterday about the Edmonton police officers, the Edmonton Transit Station. Um, and, and as a heads up, I'm going to read emails on several different subjects here. Your emails mean so much to us, friends, and we want to let you know how much we appreciate what you add to the dialogue. Uh, Dr. Padue says, I share your disdain for what happened happened at the central LRT station when police officers moved houseless individuals into the cold. However, this should not be as shocking as we think it is. As a society, we do not want to be bombarded with images that make us uncomfortable. Individuals that are houseless make those from the dominant middle class feel uncomfortable. Take the Camp Pekawiwin this past summer. You know, the main reason there was outrage is because it was prominently displayed uh, in full view of the entire city just outside the ballpark. If you don't know Edmonton, it was a, there was, it was a community of, I would say 150, 200 tents. Would you say approximately ish? Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact. It numbers, was like, it was it around was, 200. Was I, like I seem to recall self policed, right? Yeah, it the, was the bear clan patrol was there and there were others. And there were, there were some social services that were being robust cast of volunteers helping out volunteer like, nurses know, were down there. Yeah, I know quite a few people that were part of that. Yeah. As well. So yeah. it was, it was kind of brought the community together. Not everybody loved it. Um, back to Dr. Uh, Padu's email. She says with regards to that camp this summer, the main reason there was outrage, it was prominently displayed uh, rather than other camps hidden in our river Valley. Even the mayor who regularly states we need to end homelessness often says, 
you know, there's an increase in social disorder because of homelessness in Edmonton. When we focus on social disorder, we're dehumanizing and blaming those that have no home, no house for our problems, rather than admitting that the problem lies in the system that continually perpetuates houselessness and criminalizes poverty. So speaking of criminalizing poverty to deal with social disorder, your amazing guest on Wednesday, Blake Desjardins, mentioned that his cousin, Pierre, had ended up in the remand center for food fraud. Uh, Basically, he was incarcerated because he was hungry and he was then released with no support and ended up on the street. There are so many stories of individuals who are incarcerated for minor incidents and then they get released with only the clothes on their back. So guess what? If you're put in jail in July and you get released in December, with the clothes you had in July in the middle of the night, you know, Cynthia says this was highlighted this week with the tragic tale of Kimberly squirrel who was released from prison in January and was found frozen to death. Three days later, her family was not told she had been released. She had nowhere to go. Why does this happen? Because the justice system doesn't coordinate with the housing sector or with other social programs to ensure that people are safely released. And why does this happen? Because as a society, we don't value the lives of people that live in poverty that are forced to engage in activities that may jail them and ultimately wind them up back on the streets. We devalue them because they increase social disorder until we as a society value the lives of those that do not fit into what we deem as successful or worthy. We will continue to see those living in poverty being treated the way that the people at the central LRT station were treated. Ryan, you asked us, when will it change? Sadly, even though I spend most of my days trying to find that answer and, and working with amazing organizations dedicated to change the system, it will never change until we, that's all of us, truly value the lives of those that are continually oppressed by a system that perpetuates the cycle of poverty. If you want to see Dr. Padu, by the way, speaking to this, she joined our houselessness panel uh, several weeks back, a few weeks back. You can find it on our YouTube channel or on our podcast. She says, so many will ask when you, you know, if you read this email, many will ask, what can we do? Well, here's the real talk, says Cynthia. Ask yourself if you're contributing to the the dehumanization of people who are houseless. If you pride yourself on the fact that you donate to the local shelter or local charity. But then when you encounter somebody that's houseless, you don't talk to them or even worse, you look away because they make you feel uncomfortable. Your donation is not helping. Keep up your donations, but the next time you encounter a houseless individual, stop, say hello, and wish them a good day. This act of humanizing them will go a lot longer for that individual than any donation. And of course, demand this of your elected officials and push them to change the system. There's obviously a lot more complexity to the problem than this. But if we can all start here and treat everybody as human beings, then maybe things may start to change. In the meantime, says Dr. Purdue, keep fighting the good fight and bring these important stories to light. Thank you for that. I love this from Caleb. Caleb said, you've had some interesting shows on Real Talk in the last few weeks, especially the segments on electrification, climate change. It, it seems to me this is the email I was looking for earlier. This is the one I was looking for. I knew it was in one of my piles, Sam. Here it is. Caleb says it seems to me there are loud voices on two sides, one toward renewables and the other toward toward oil and gas preservation. And the main arguments all leaned at demonstrating that alternative energy sources cannot adequately power our frigid and modern life. I tend to agree, and I wonder where the people are that are arguing for the reduction of consumption as a solution. Ryan, have you had a guest on, or would you consider having a guest? The answers are no and yes. 
that has expertise in reducing how much energy and materials that Albertans use. Although maybe our maybe the Moses family that showed us through their house the other day, their net zero house was an example. Caleb says if we have fewer cars, smaller houses, smartphones or appliances that lasted longer than just a few years and so on. What would that mean for our carbon footprint in an oil and gas world? I mean, doesn't lower consumption also mean less of a strain on a carbon net zero energy grid? In public policy, what are the implications for incentivizing lower consumption? Caleb says, I'd be happy to point you in the direction of a few experts. That from Caleb. Thank you. And consider this my expression of interest. If you want to pass along some suggested guests, we'd appreciate that. I will say that Kubi Energy let us know that if you do live in the city of Edmonton, we know a significant portion of our listening audience does. Uh, there's a $4,000 grant right now that you can get if you put solar in your home and they do all the paperwork. So there you go. That's that's one thing. I love this. And I want to end on this one today. This this gave us something to think about. We had a lot of fun with our with the strategists, with with Corey and Zane and Steven on the show uh, on Friday, to say the least. It was a lot of fun. I want to let you know our our Friday roundtable tomorrow focuses on uh, Black History Month and it's going to be great. Lauren wrote in and said, um, I listened to the Friday roundtable with the strategists and it was good entertainment, as is their podcast, which usually makes me both laugh out loud and yell at them at least once per episode. That's a good sign if you're doing a podcast. Also, having listened to the strategist enough times, I, I think that's a very accurate representation of how the strategist works. I wonder if Lauren maybe like laughs at one and yells at the other. Yeah, possibly. They're uh, they're quite the characters. <laughs> laugh at Corey, yell at Carter. That's probably the way that it goes. I, I would say probably. <laughs> Lauren says, but by the end of the hour... With you and Sam and three other men all having a hearty laugh, I was still pissed off by something that Stephen Carter did early in the episode, says Lauren, and I'm still stewing about it. A couple of female listeners had commented on the war metaphors. And if you watch the panel, you know what we're talking about, the roundtable, just about how politics typically taps into war terminology, war room and campaign and all the other things. And Carter said that campaign was a war term and, and that's the way it is. And then he just carried on talking. They told us to stop being a pain in the ass. He did not stop to acknowledge that he heard what they said or consider that there might be another way to talk about politics that isn't about war or enemies. And between that and the ongoing juvenile joke about the size of Corey's microphone, I felt like I had intruded into a man cave party that women were not invited to. Lauren says much of politics is like that. And then you wonder why women don't want to run for office. I mean, if there were any women on that screen, would the discourse have been different? Would the conversation perhaps be more about policy and how to bring people together to actually achieve something as opposed to winning against the enemy? Lauren says, I do have a good sense of humor and I'm not trying to be a party pooper here. Guys can have fun, but politics shouldn't be a man cave. Perhaps Carter and others could think about how political discourse could be improved by welcoming the 50 plus percent of the population that isn't men into the conversation. And if your conversation would change if women were included, is that telling you something? My point is that the political discourse should not have to change because women are included. But that hour clearly demonstrated how we weren't. For Carter, I'm probably older than him and, and, and not even a bit embarrassed about my age. Why should I be? I, I agree with him some of the time and Corey some of the time, but sometimes both of them are full of shit 
Also, Zane is the most handsome. No contest. Lauren says, thank you for reading this. If you do, and please know, I signed up on Patreon the other day. Lauren, thank you. Thank you for your email. Thank you for holding this show's feet to the fire. I wrote down uh, on a paper that I've since thrown away. This gives you a sense. I described, uh, I, I did an interview with the magazine yesterday. There's going to be an issue coming out in May. We're excited. This is going to feature real talk in our journey. Um, and, and she said to me, how do you manage everything? And I said, I don't. And she said, what's it like between your ears? And I said, it's like a fireworks show <laughs> all the time. So I think it was Robin that said this earlier uh, in the chat. And again, the show is called Real Talk. So we're going to we're going to keep it real. I think it was Robin earlier in the chat that said, you want to know what I would change about this show? I'd like to see fewer white men. And I kind of went, OK, um, uh, you know, we had just spoken to, and, and I'm just going to keep it real. OK, this is all over my radar in booking the show all over my radar. And as a matter of fact, and this is not me, I want you to know this is not me being defensive. It's not like, for example, that email from Lauren. I love it. I take Lauren's point. Now, the strategists are a collective. They're a group. They are a podcast. Wouldn't make, you know, I don't want to do two of the strategists and make sure there's a woman on the panel. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you take a look at the track record of Real Talk just 10 weeks in, and, and if you want to be fair and have a fair conversation, I encourage you to look back. And what you will find is that it is a important, perhaps the most important priority of ours, that this show represents its viewing audience, its listening audience, and society at large. And, you know, it, you know I think it was Robin. Uh, Robin's message came in today. Um, and, and I, I feel a little bit weird talking about a guest this way, but just to point out our first guest this morning, uh, is trans and, and the comment came in right after that. Like, I'd like to see fewer white men. And I kind of went, well, that's kind of interesting because I, I don't see a lot of, and, 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 um, you know, our guest this morning, uh, Juniper was not on the show because they are trans. That was not the point. Uh, Dr. Simonis, um, but they happen to be, and, I think that if you look back, you'll see that this show has made really meaningful efforts to ensure that female voices are heard, that voices of persons with disabilities are heard, that people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from people from different religious backgrounds, um, we really do make an effort. And I guess all I'm saying here, and, I, and again, I want to say that this is in, the, in a positive and loving spirit that I'm saying this. It is a priority of ours, and we appreciate you pointing these things out. There are going to be some old white dudes on the show. There's, I mean, I'm, get, I'm getting into that territory myself, quite frankly. But if we want to talk about representation of society, um, it's important to us that all voices are heard. And so here's the challenge that I'll put to you. If you feel like a voice is not being heard, like we're getting we're getting lobbied right now. I want to talk about it because it's kind of funny. It's, it's like endearing and wonderful and a little bit funny that many of you are writing in about a one particular guest you want me to have on the show. You want me to have Les Landry on the show because because he's he's a he's a citizen that's doing amazing things to confront and address some of the challenges around people living in poverty in the province of Alberta. Like I probably get like 15 emails a week about less, um, it, which is, is both funny and also telling to me that this is a story that we want to cover because people are eager to hear that. 
That's one example of a thousand where and you've seen a couple examples of it even on the show today where we book guests based on audience suggestions. So if you feel like a perspective is not being presented on this show, you know, whether it's somebody saying living a more sustainable lifestyle, living off the grid, whether it's a person of color talking about barriers to people getting into politics, whether it's someone from a gender minority that's talking about maybe what, what you know, a language that we use, uh, you know, that can be harmful or that can can act as a detriment to, to society evolving or bettering itself, whatever the case may be. You know, conditions on First Nations reserves, water quality. I mean, these are, I'm literally right now going through actual real emails that we've received in our inbox. You are a part of making this show better and ensuring that this show represents its audience and the priorities of its audience. Another great way for you to get involved is by taking part on a weekly basis with our question of the week presented by Y Station. This week, uh, we're asking you about, about one subject that matters. The next week, it'll be a completely different subject that matters. So we may be talking about coal, or we may be talking about cryptocurrency, or we may be talking about budgets, but we want to know what you think. And we go over these top line reports our Patreon supporters have exclusive access to these top line reports. You can find more at RyanJesperson.com. And it's how we gauge where our audience is at. And we're so grateful for that. And we're so grateful that you continue to keep in touch with us and encourage us to make this show the best that it can be. A big reason why this show is, is growing every single day, of course, is because of the sponsors that have joined us on our journey. And that includes the team at Alta Moving and Storage. We're getting out of the Arctic tundra type temps in our neck of the woods and across Western Canada. And if that means that you're going to get serious about a move, they're the ones you want to make your first call. They've got these pod style containers. This is the new way of doing it. No longer does the moving truck show up. Everybody's panicking because you only have it for a certain amount of time and you're blocking the street and the neighbors are upset and you're all stressed out and it's just making the whole experience one that you're going to regret. That's what Alta Moving and Storage is all about. They take that stress. They just be gone. They park that pod style container at your place. You fill it up at your leisure based on the plan that you've devised with them to best fit your situation. They provide the labor if you need it and even long and short term storage solutions along the way. You'll find the team at Alta Moving and Storage under the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. And that's also where you'll find Westworld computers. If you need to upgrade your gear, your phone is slow, the software updates. I mean, geez, you know it's time to replace it. But it's not the time for you. Maybe you've been out of work. Maybe money's tight. Westworld wants to work with your budget, and that includes their lineup of gently used, refurbished, re-warrantied products from the Apple Watches and the iPhones all the way up to the iPads, the iMacs, the MacBook Pros. They've got a lineup of gently you know, pre-owned and refurbished gear ready for you to check out. That is another Thursday show. Tomorrow's going to be a good one. As mentioned, the panel that we have lined up, I am so excited for our Friday roundtable. That's from 9 to 10. We'll focus on Black History Month, but we're going to take it from three different individual angles. What does it mean to Andrew Parker, to Eric Domond, and to Semhar Tekest? That's coming up tomorrow on Real Talk at ryanjesperson.com, 8.30 Mountain Time. In the meantime, we'll see you on Twitter. We'll talk to you soon. The gun